Hello, and welcome to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon. Joining me on the other line, we keep running into each other at the same EST seminar, and it's kind of weird. It's Danielle Hanley. Here she is, EST uh, devotee. Yeah, I mean, we are like our advanced to super EST level. Whatever the term in Scientology where you like get super advanced, that's for the stage that we have reached in our EST journey together. Very true. But also, John, we are not alone. So who else is with us? Uh, also joining us on the other line, future co-host of Not Quite Great Books, Popecast. This is a good <laughs> thing, Ben, that I found him praying in a bathroom in West Berlin. It's John Keller. Hello. He's back. You're back. How are you guys? We're good. We're excited We're good. to have you here for the hat trick of three seasons, three finales. Uh, yeah. Three times to so, discuss, uh, you know, Oleg. <laughs> am, am, am I uh, leading the league in appearances now with this appearance or no? Are there, yes. are there other people? Have, yeah. With appearances that we ha- will release, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you you surpassed. Uh, you, got a, you got one season head start on Lily Gorin. Uh, yeah. You know, our co-favorite uh, guest. Gorin's well, <laughs> yeah. um, tough, man. Corin is a tough competitor, and you're tough. now you're now an appearance ahead of Crandall and Schiller alike. Yeah, right. I could ta- I could take those two, but Corin, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Gorin, I know. Gorin's like a pro; she publishes on this on TV and stuff, yeah. right? It's like a, yeah, yeah. It's like she's it's, published it's to, on the Americans. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> you know, it's like that's not a realistic goal for me, right? So, but 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 appearances is I think I could do well with appearances, right? So yeah. attendance or. Attendance, or just right. <laughs> yeah, attendance yeah. and participation grade. John, John and, plus. But Absolutely. unfortunately for John and I, the way that we do it is class citizenship. So oh, I don't yeah. know. Because <laughs> well, content's important there. John yeah. did come prepared with backup um, headphone options. Yes. So I think he's succeeding <laughs> in that uh, character. Oh my God, I can't. We can't talk. I can't. <laughs> Okay. I mean the Gore the, the Gore the Gore in standards not fair. It's like I don't. I'm not, she's, in, she's in a different league, right? I'm happy yeah. to compete with everybody. Everybody okay. else. And you know, what? I actually I realize now that you and Lily are tied because Lily was also on one of the MCU episodes. Yeah. So you've each been on three episodes, just that hers were split across MCU and Americans. And and she, I'm sure she was very prepared for all three, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, at, like, as prepared as that super fan dude was in his, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 That's exactly well, don't worry, John. I mean, I don't think we've actually determined whether or not Popecast is happening or not, or whether Danielle <laughs> will permit it. But if Popecast oh, happens, I fully endorse it. Okay. Well, if that actually happens and John can commit himself to that many appearances, you'll just build an insurmountable lead. That's that's a that's a great argument, John. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm sold. You act as if I have to like drag you to come talk about Lenny Bellardo and like against your will. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so excited to not have to be a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll get maybe I'll guest in on one of them, Keller, like you guessed in on these. <laughs> yeah, you hate religion, right? It's good. You're anti religion, right? It's perfect. You'll you'll relate to that part, you know. Oh my god. <laughs> you like Machiavelli. Right, you like I do like Machiavelli. <laughs> um, anyway, I feel like I've stars, I, 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 I just, Machiavelli I, uh, soliloquy on this podcast a few weeks back. Go ahead. I'm sure, I'm sure every episode. 
so I just want to go over the ground rules again. Um, yes. Every both every both end over one each of you is you have to demo me fifty dollars for the first violation, then twenty five for subsequent violations. Cave, I have it right here. The cave is eliminated. And there's an expanded seven minute section on the new baseball MLB rules. Right? Fair enough. Okay, done. Some, something like done. that. Yeah. And right, John good, is actually holding right. up a piece of paper yeah. that I think is just print out of the I show think it's outline. Just the outline. But you know, if there are also terms of his new contract with the Not Quite Great Books podcast, he does have us over a barrel as our number one preference for Popecast. Listen, if it makes you feel better, I'm only going to charge you for one both hand violation. So once you blow through that, just keep going because you only got to pay once. Challenge accepted. <laughs> but I also am the kind of person that like last year was the first year I had to pay for heat in a, lo- in a while. And I just like didn't turn my heat on. So I think no, that listen. I'll just try not to say those words. Deep down, you know, I really want to understand what that bullshit term means. But like, you know, and I really do. Oh my I, just, God. I just know it doesn't mean anything. But like I, deep down, I hope I hope somehow that I can be shown to see that it does mean something. Right. It sounds like John it all the time needs to tear apart his contract and we need to do like a cave segment <laughs> Only on, the cave. on on Gilles Deleuze difference in repetition <laughs> and then John will come to appreciate both ends theoretical expansiveness but also mm. I've told McMahon this but Keller I want to tell you one of my best friends yeah. from grad school Greg Kutnick who you would love um who John has met but Greg and I obviously both theorists my dearest best friend from grad school, Isabel. And we went to a cidery on Cayuga Lake, which is very lovely. And at the cidery, Greg, who also has no time for the like posty both and stuff, was like angry about the fact that I sort of said it in conversation. And Isabel, who's not a theorist, she's comparativist and brilliant, was like, could you just explain to me what this means? Because people use it and I just like... Am I missing something? And then I, for two hours, was trying to explain what it meant, and neither of them was buying any of it. So, And luckily for Danielle, she recorded that, and it's available on our Patreon. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> Keller's like, I can't wait to not pay for that. <laughs> so the second thing I need you guys to understand about today is last time I was on, I was in the middle of my sabbatical, and now yeah. I'm... Back to the salt mine, and basically it's way less pleasant, right? Much more more sleep-deprived. And it sucks, too, because I was off for so long. It's like I wasn't just doing it, right? And so it's so hard to come back. Oh, my God. So I hope you never get a sabbatical because coming back from it is terrible. I mean, it's just... It's awful. It's awful. <laughs> don't don't worry. I'm in an underfunded public education system. I'm not getting a sabbatical in my. Career. I mean, I'm not don't getting worry. another one. That's for, that's for sure. I'm glad I got. I'm have currently one, right? trying to negotiate a longer sabbatical than most people get because I have not had a semester where I haven't taught multiple classes since 2013. <laughs> so wow. I will take your advice and spit on it. <laughs> this summer, I'm going to Greece, so nice. I'm not teaching. I want to throw my phone in the Aegean. Like yeah. she's oh. going to cross the sea, come to us live from the Vatican for Popecast. 
I am so, going to Italy for another Harry Styles concert. So, wow. <laughs> sorry, I just bought I just bought tickets to the Cure yesterday to see them in Montreal. Jealous. So, the Cure is still touring. Yes, this is their first oh North America. This is I mean, this is actually core um, Americans talk because of the eightiesness of it all. Very but, true. Yeah, absolutely. The Cure is doing their first North American tour in like eight years wow. this summer. Is their lineup the same or similar at least? I actually don't know. I mean, Robert Smith is still there, and like I understand mm-hmm. there are other people who are also important, but like if you know, Robert Smith is the is the key. When are you seeing them? June, mid June. Okay. Very cool. Nice. Very cool. I'm also seeing Harry Styles again in mid-June. So we're both doing the requisite music work here. (laughs) That's true. That's true. The two pillars of the Not Quite Great Books uh, podcast music. Harry Styles and The Cure do feel like the two pillars. (laughs) Something like that. All right. Should we talk about whatever the episode is about? We're nine and a half minutes in. We're talking about American Season 3, Episode 13, the finale of Season 3, entitled March 8th, 1983, directed by Daniel Sackheim, written by the showrunners Joseph Weisberg and Joel Fields. Danielle, what is our short and sweet IMDb summary for today? You know, IMDb had, like, won us back over last week with three full sentences, and now we're back to one sentence. The episode summary for March 8th, 1983, the year I was born, um, is Elizabeth and Paige take a trip that lands them in treacherous territory. Yeah. Treachery does abound in this episode. But not, but specifically not for Elizabeth and Paige. (laughs) Well, I mean, Paige's surreptitious late night call to Pastor Tim, extreme treachery. Okay, I guess we're, like, really, like, thinking expansively about what (laughs) territory means here. Fine. (laughs) I would like to think expansively and ask John Keller a crucial question, which is, why, John, do you think this episode spends so much time in Est with Philip and Sandy? (laughs) Est is really cool. Um, (laughs) Because you learned a lot from it in your day. (laughs) <laughs> no, I think it's the height. It's the height of the of the Reagan era kind of stuff. Is a self help uh, thing that's attendant to deregulated Reaganism. It's very American, etc. So I think that like making internalizing that question a little bit about the two of them and their own kind of foibles and they're mm-hmm. they're kind of dancing around each other. And then later on, she says, "Hey, you want to do? We should just tell everybody everything." And he's like, "Whoa, no, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think I can do that. Yeah, <laughs> no, no." But I appreciate the gesture. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, they really go d- deep on this. So why do you guys think they spend so much time there? I was trying to figure out, like, the entire episode. Like, why do we keep going back to S? And I think, like, part of it for me is that Philip is, like, he's in such a an introspective, like, messed up, like, really reevaluating space. And I think, like, S is the vehicle that, like both kind of in jest and we joke around about it. And also like Philip and, and Stan joke around about it. But in reality, like that introspection is like the thing that Sandy finds in Est. And so I think that that's like part of, part of what we need. But it's manufactured introspection though. That's the whole thing. They tell you how to introspect and they give you the, the formula for introspection and a way to, and they call it process, right? 
and this is, and this is, I think that point combines the two things you two said together, right? That like Sandy in some ways is the most emotionally actualized character in the Americans, but it's only in this extremely processed neoliberalized Reagan era self-help way. Right. But then I think it's, even if we accept the limitations on that, the fact that we have Sandy so prominent in this episode against both Stan and against Philip and in the context of Est, and we see like the intense blockage, but also trying to like let go or trying to like expurgate his feelings that Philip is experiencing makes Est kind of the perfect crucible for that in particular, because we shouldn't forget that he kind of starts off this episode, right? One of the first things that happens, it's the what second scene in the episode is he has like 45 seconds with Yusuf and Yusuf is like, you know, was it worth it? Was what happened yeah. to Annalise worth it, et cetera, et cetera. And Philip as Scott Berkland starts to give his usual bullshit justification for it. Then he just gives up and is just says, I feel like shit all the time, Yusef. And scene hard cut out. So like, I think that, you know, in an episode where Paige feels like shit, Stan feels like shit, Oleg feels like shit, like all of these characters are just in such a terrible space that as becomes a kind of like exploration of how they do and don't deal with all of their ways they feel like shit. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that that is a really intelligent read on, on like the work that Est is doing, because I think like, to me, the big thing that was happening in this episode or the thing that I kind of kept coming back to is this piece of Est was like, it was all, it's all this focus on the body and like the body holds the, the like truth of experience. And, and even though Keller, mm. you're right, like that insight is like absolutely manufactured, but like that, like the body holding some kind of truth is like really like prominent for Philip. It's prominent for Paige. I think also it's like prominent in a different way for Elizabeth and her mom and that, and that relationship. And also like, ultimately like Sandy and Stan, although Sandy tries to like back off of it a little bit, she's like, no, no, no. Like the sex with Stan was fine. And it's like, okay, we like, it's fine. We didn't need to go there. That idea of the body holding truth as like, as Mm -hmm. part of the connection to us feels like maybe the way into some of these things. Well, it's a very like like American Gnostic way of thinking about mm. truth to begin with, and so I like that's why I like this S conversation because I I love American political thought and it's like it's such an American thing, just like Mormonism is. It's such a ridiculous American creation, right? And well, why is that, more John? Say more about that. Why is what? Why is it such oh. an American thing? Yeah. Well, it's about self actualization. It's about kind of you know mm. making of the self on one's own terms. The listen to your body and, and ignore your mind thing. By the way, it's a funny. Uh, twist on the mind body problem it's like a hilarious reagan oh, era like we're getting you know, there just, don't worry don't just just, worry. just listen to your just listen to your body kind of thing i mean it's like you know deregulation you know it's like um don't you know don't be constricted by your superego like you know listen to your yeah. inner truth which comes from your body though not from your conscience or something yeah. else right well i'm um, like the the thing about that that's so fun, I think like the other piece of the Americanness of that, and I agree with that 
with like that assessment. I think the other piece of the Americanness is something that you also mentioned, which is like, there's an element of like ridiculousness to all of it. Like there's something ridiculous about Mormonism, about like the idea that like Jesus buried some tablets in upstate New York or whatever the founding myth of Mormonism is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 go, I go visit them every day during my lunch break. Right. Why don't we bury, bury them up there? <laughs> <laughs> Why bury them in Indiana right. or Illinois or Utah? Yeah, like right. what's wrong with and, like Jerusalem or, you know, fucking Alexandria <laughs> or like some like, historically significant place. Somewhere right? where you didn't have to ostensibly like row a boat across multiple oceans. <laughs> but like, so there's like that part of it. There's something about S that has that like, ooh, it's like tapping into these things that we can have a really serious conversation about. But there, it's like the butt of it feels very American in terms of like self-help movement, the way that religion sort of gets configured here, like sort of all of these pieces together. Yeah, so it's not an accident that the Reagan period unleashes a lot of the self-help yeah. stuff, a lot of Joel Osteen stuff, a lot of these guys are off to the races at this at this moment because it's a perfect moment for them, right? In terms of like the neoliberalization is also an individualization yeah, the, of everything and yeah. being like, a, yeah. you only have the own resources you can muster on your own behalf to, you know, deal with the forces of the market or whatever. Like, is that kind of what we're thinking? Yes. And, yeah. and you owe it to yourself to be the best that you can be for yourself and yourself only. Right. It's a lot of you's in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <It's> like, yeah. <laughs> Right there, there, there is no society. Right, it's the you know the. If we I mean, Car Carter Thatcher was talking about shared shit. sacrifice and malaise, and like that's not a good period for that. Right, that's like that <laughs> right. seems that seems gross and excessive. But Reagan is saying, you know, go go after it. You know, well, and Reagan is like such a blatant rejection of all of those pieces of Carter. Right, like. Mm -hmm. There's part of me that wants to do like a wants to nerd out on a little bit of Jane Bennett and modernity right now, but I'm going to rein it in because we promised the cave wouldn't be the only thing we did today. Yeah, <laughs> but if John feels the need to tear up his contract, he we, he'll let us know and we can we can go there. Go ahead, go on. No, but so, so I, have a, I have a question about Philip then in re, in relation to all of these sorts of questions. That is. Does Philip feel sheepish in the way he demonstrates feeling sheepish to Sandy, if we even agree that that's what he's, like, the affect he's giving off? Because, mm -hmm. to what extent is that because he knows this is kind of ridiculous at the same time that he's taking it seriously, compared to he feels sheepish about it because Elizabeth would laugh his ass, her ass off at him, compared to... There's a risk or maybe a fantasy of disclosing something about his spy self uh, be if he got too into S. Like, how do we make sense of those different reasons that he himself is feeling um, like he has to hide the fact that he's at S from Elizabeth, as he quite explicitly does in both encounters with Sandy? To me, it's it it the most important or like where the emphasis is for Philip, at least the way that I'm reading him, is the like the worry slash fantasy of like of revealing something that he shouldn't be revealing because his whole life is about not revealing, which again, like throws the idea that like truth, it, truth like lies within the body in some way. Right. Like it throws that into relief in a kind of interesting way because his entire life is like not about truth. Those things for Philip can't 
ever be fully disconnected from the Elizabeth of it all, right? So I think when he does say those things, he's like, there is part of his sheepishness is is about the fact that he's hiding it and that he knows that this is a thing he needs to hide. Because we don't get the reveal that Martha is like still around until the end of the episode, the way that I was reading those Philip scenes early on was like, well, he's lost the one person that he like is not a fully true version of himself to, but it feels like in some ways at least the emotional true emotionally truest version of himself and so he needs like that replacement like that that was some of the work that s was doing then we like learn that martha's still around and i just like all of my analyses got like tossed in the air (laughs) i mean it's also exactly what you can imagine at the residentora when they make fun of americans Americans mm-hmm. and what they do in their spare mm-hmm. time, going to some jack off <laughs> thing like that is exactly what they yeah. do. But they would, they'd be smoking cigarettes, drinking vodka and being like these fucking morons. They go to this shit where they, you know, jerk themselves off and talk about, you know, how fucking, you know, great their selves are and how they got to listen to their body. Cause they have no they're searching <laughs> yeah. for gods and meaning. And they don't have like, you know, when you have a system and you have a kind of like, you know, there's a kind of way in which it's mapped out for you. There's no need for that. Right. That's like a stupid, you know, that's I I love that point, John. A because now I'm just imagining a deleted scene where uh, Arcadi is just <laughs> yeah. like, is doing this rant, and like they kept it away from us for reasons that I'll never understand. Yeah. And second, because that ties into the Reagan speech at the end, right? Which gives the episode its title and then gives the episode kind of its crescendo at the end, right? So in the evil empire speech that is on in the background and then Elizabeth is like, we have to go pay attention to this. He has this line about how like they believe in the supremacy of the state over man, right? And so I think that there's that particular Mm -hmm. conflict that you're hitting on right there, John. Yeah, no, that's why I read that. It's also, you know, he likes to lean into everything as American as possible, Philip, to experience it, you know, for one reason or another, you know. Elizabeth has no interest in any of that stuff. No, and the the American as possible is a really good point and not something that I was thinking about, but I do think that there is maybe an element of that that, like, pulls him to Est in this moment where he's, like, feeling a little bit what seems like direction directionless, right? Like just needing some grounding that it's like, oh, let me like this like American fad thing that I went to in in a sort of silly supportive way for Stan. Like maybe there's something there. Yeah, well, that's the American regime in general, right? It's a purposeless regime, and so one has to yeah, one has to bring purpose to it on oneself. So by oneself. So it could be a church that you shop around and pick. It could mm-hmm. be you know Tony Robbins. It could be Est. It could be whatever to a Russian that's like, what the fuck is all that? What the fuck are you talking about? Like, what do you need all that for? You know? And it was, and uh, Philip has lost one of what seems to have been in the past, one of his groundings. And that is, you were referencing this earlier, Danielle, is Gabriel, right? Like, yeah. he has yet another in his long line of fights with Gabriel this season. <laughs> With this in this episode where Gabriel is like, you're a child. You don't see 10 feet in front of you. Every time Elizabeth does something you don't want, doesn't mean that she's wrong. Like Gabriel is extremely harsh towards Philip, even harsher than he has been at other points this season. So that's another like mooring that Philip has lost. The static between them is so great. I love those scenes so (sighs) much. They really don't like each other. You know, it's funny. 
Well, they really don't like each other. And also there's like something about the blocking of the scene in this episode in particular, where they start really far away from each other. And then Gabriel, like when he's making the point of like, you don't see 10 feet in front of you. He like comes right up into Philip's like space. And I was like, I was really struck by the physicality of that, even though Mm. there's it, there's no like threatening body language, but there's something about the like, like encroaching upon that feels like it's like another mode of emphasis that the words are getting. And Franklin Gella is a large man. He's like at six four yeah. or something to Matthew Reese's slightly smaller Welsh stature. I'm, I'm stuck oh. on that line. You can't see 10 feet in front of you. I, I just feel like that's really interesting. And he says after that, something like uh, we've done nothing but take care of you. And yeah, you think that if you don't get what you want. There's something wrong with us. And he says, you think there's something wrong with basically us meeting the Russian state or whatever, or the residentura or Elizabeth, there's something wrong with her. If she yeah. doesn't agree with him. And I just wondered what you guys made of that. I love that line. You can't, you can't see 10 feet in front of you. It's like, you just want to have get your wife to go to your, you just want your kid and your wife to see your mother and your, your kid to see your grandmother and you don't care about anything else, you know? I mean, I, I was, it's like, it's such a good read on Philip. Like Gabriel, Gabe, the thing about Gabriel is like, he has such a good sense of who both Philip and Elizabeth are. And he's usually using it in in ways to kind of like more subtly manipulate them and here he's like i'm not trying to manipulate you i want you to know that i know your game and like you've also fucked up here and it's also i think back to the point that john you are making about philip and asked and the americanness of asked that you know Philip has so individualized or perhaps like family unit eyes in the way that like Reagan or Thatcher would think about it, that I think Gabriel's in part responding to that element that like, yeah, there actually isn't that sense of obligation towards the state or the center or whatever um, that Gabriel has made core to his own life. And that Elizabeth has maintained as core to her own life. And like we have seen Elizabeth, resent that or rebel against that at various points over the first three seasons. And we've seen Gabriel like bridling up against that throughout the season. Then it kind of comes to a head here in this episode at the point at which Philip like convinces Elizabeth or encourages Elizabeth to take the Philip approach to solving the problem, which is just like ignore what the center would say and go to West Berlin and like make it happen as opposed to what should happen, which is you go through Gabriel, Gabriel does or doesn't pass along the request to the center, the center then sends word back through Gabriel. So like Philip has just totally thrown that process out the window and has gotten Elizabeth and by extension Paige to go along with it. (laughs) That's what Tocqueville says about when Americans want a streetlight change, they just fucking climb up there and change it. (laughs) Got back and forth to Paris and then two months later... Somebody can comes I, out in a stagecoach and, and fixes it, you know? Can I invoke but, the... Can a $50 I get fine? <laughs> Danielle and I get $50 for John going into the cave so early? This is, I think, the second time that John has dipped into the cave it by the, the by. Time. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so that's 75 what. We're up to $75 in so you the guys O, Danielle three, and I. So you, you get three both ends or three unauthorized visits to the cave. Now you, you're banking it. Right? I'll take my. Okay, you, I'll you actually. 
I don't need full fans or visits to the cave because I live in the cave. But I will take my I will take my payment in the form of <laughs> I will take my payment in the form of like an like a meal at an authentic Italian red sauce place on Arthur Ave. All right, well, we'll see how this turns out. If you're if you're in the red, get it in the red. Uh, oh, it's a Soviet joke. again in Italian food. Yeah, food exactly. Food. Yeah, what, it a, it what a what it a brilliant scene by, uh, by John Keller. Listen, if I'm, I'm out dead. like 400 bucks to you guys, of course I'll take it to Arthur Avenue instead of Venmo. <laughs> you know, right? My choice is Venmo. You guys, 200 bucks each. Take you out for one round of fucking, you know, uh, you know, you know, uh, chicken you know, parm. You know, chicken parm and cannolis, right? And Arthur Man. Avenue for eighty for eighty two fifty. I only need the cannolis, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. All right, deal, 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 deal. Uh, but, oh my like, god! Wait, wait, wait. Though, but but like that scene though is like really. I mean, I don't know. I just I love that scene so much. I just think you know, it's like so like we know what's best for you and you don't kind of thing and like. Yeah, you could argue the source of Philip's, you know, disaffectedness is he went too native as a quote unquote, right? I mean, that's what he did, right? He got like he gets he's really into these American things. He loves football and hockey. And yeah, you feel like Elizabeth just memorizes just enough to fake everything. She has yeah. no interest in it, right? Yeah, he actually likes these. He likes that nice car that he bought, right? He didn't just mm-hmm. get it till he looked like a guy with a nice car who was who was a successful businessman. He actually likes it. He likes talking to Henry about the sports teams and the standings and whatever, right? And the state capitals. <laughs> and the state capitals. And as right? we'll see was, in later seasons, like he will get really and I don't feel bad spoiling this for Danielle, like he'll get really into the actual business of running the travel agency. Right? Like he wants she, to she make it a budge. successful business. She does Honestly, not budge. the thing that I'm most up. surprised that didn't happen in this episode is nobody went to Kenya. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah. really predicting, like, that we were going to be in Kenya. Pastor Tim kept talking about Kenya. I was like, we'd keep going. And he's, like, literally, like, you know, one of those comparative politics behavioralists who just, like, drops in for a field experiment every once in a while is, like, got to go to Kenya. <laughs> I'm sure yeah, now that okay. he has uh has uh called pastor tim he'll be shipped off to kenya uh anytime right. anytime more like uh, the producer saw that and went to the writers like kenya we can't fucking make kenya in the brooklyn navy yards what you what's wrong uh, with like kansas city or something you know <laughs> wait okay i want to let's do we have anything else that we want to say about the Philip Gabriel stuff? Because if not, I want to I want to dip into you know what feels like Philip's most intense murder this episode. Yeah, uh-huh. or like yeah. intensely staged one. Yeah, what I mean, intense in what way, Danielle? Like what is well, particularly I mean, communicates like, that about this episode? One that it's like a fake suicide, right? Like that that like the. Mm the murder of Jean when they when the camera pans to the body hanging that's a lot so i think like intense in that way but also intense in the again like i was watching this episode having never seen it before like assuming that martha was dead so then this felt like a like it, it felt egregious in the like like antigone double double burial excess thing 
You're welcome. We're back in the cave. I told you I lived here. <laughs> All right, that's 50, 50 now. Good. That. That's a half a dozen fewer cannolis that will be bought for Danielle on our You're still up two. You're still up two. Go ahead. Um, the toys and the computer and the sort of like side characterness of Gene that then makes all of this feel more egregious, also. Mm-hmm. And I think it's Phil's perspective. It's literally catatonic way. afterwards. Sorry, I think it's ahead. his perspective. He notices all those toys. Like, in yeah. other words, each time he has to do something awful, it gets worse and worse and worse for him. Whereas Elizabeth is just, it's work. You know? This is the job, yeah. Just, every time it's harder and harder and harder. And this time he's looking at children's toys after he just, you know, strangled this poor guy, right? He's looking at these kids' toys all over there. And it's like, I think that's kind of like... You know, would he have noticed all those details or, or let himself notice in the past? Probably not. And the right? scene ends sees- with one of those toys, to your point, John, like one of the toys bobbling away, right? Yeah. Like that's that's the yeah. end of the scene. The camera doesn't or the scene doesn't cut mm-hmm. from Philip looking sad. It comes cuts from Philip mm-hmm. looking sad, shot at the computer with the suicide mm-hmm. note, quote unquote suicide note, which I want to get to, and then shot of the of the toy and like I don't know the the way that they the they shoot the fact that Gene has been hung by Philip or made to look like he hung himself by or hanged himself by Philip. Um, at first, it's almost like a kind of obscure in the back, like blink and you'll miss it. Yeah. Right? So it's like it's kind of haunting Philip um, at first, and like maybe the viewer sees it, maybe they don't. And then it's like here you mentioned this, Danielle. The camera just pans over to Gene, yeah, like, hanging there while Philip is in the midst of like staging, planting the recording device pickup. And, yeah, uh, planting the quote unquote suicide note. They really emphasize this note that he leaves on the computer, right? Like it's a couple different times they show it, and it's I had no choice. I'm sorry, and like yes, okay, that's mm. Philip's you know fake suicide note for for Gene. It's also kind of the story of Philip's fucking life at this point, yeah. and why he feels like shit. Yeah, well, and it's like yeah. it feels like what Philip would write in his own suicide note, which is, I think, part of the haunting piece of it. And I think is the part that is, like, one is the part that's, like, sinking in when he is, like, laying on his bed, when he is, like, playing with the toy, when he is, like, ignoring the fact that his son has gone to seek out another father. Like, <laughs> he's doing all of these things. <laughs> so, Stan, yeah, no... Stan's a great is great to Henry. What you, you know, I know, like, I know. That's, that's the problem. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? No, it's not. What do you mean? Henry you know? would like Philip to be his dad. <laughs> no, this is the eighties, man. I, I hung out with all my friends' parents all the time. It was not like without now. your no friends point. there. Uh, well, yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah, no. Also, uh, it's not. Yeah, no, the no, no. Thing no. Is good, that point, good point. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I missed that. I missed that. <laughs> it's that I missed that, actually. Yeah. Um, Wait, yeah, John, can you send no you to S to, like, process some of these memories? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, no, yeah, right. We would never do that, right? We would go neighborhood parents, right, but we were always together. It wasn't just... Yeah, or, or like, you know, you were, like, 
out until your parents were like, come home when it gets dark, which is like what my parents would have said when we like were at my grandparents or like and rode our bikes to the park. They'd be like, be home before it gets dark. So we would do that. And like if other people were at the playground, we would play with them. But I would never like go hang out in right. a person's house if the person I was friends with wasn't there. But also I didn't have any friends. So, like, weren't related to me until, like, at least fifth grade. <laughs> and as far as you know, Sean and Vicky are not KGB or FSB spies. Well, I don't have a, <laughs> a pastor to call and tell them. So. <laughs> the real chicken or the egg situation. <laughs> well, I mean, we get at the end of the episode, Philip gets home and... Henry's not there. He finds, you know, listens to the message on the machine that Henry's yeah. over at Stan's house playing the football, like, Stratomatic game or whatever. Dumb. And mm-hmm. instead of going over there, calling over there, or getting Henry back, Philip is like, I need to go sulk. I need to do my yeah. sad boy Philip Matthew Reese face. I need to listen to news about the Afghan war on BBC radio. And I just need to like be sad and, you know, up in my feelings and feeling like shit like I always do. And early, even earlier seasons, Philip, like first season, Philip would have just walked over to get Henry or called Stan to be like, "Oh, I'm home. Send Henry back." So there's also let's like play a, some racquetball, yeah, or let's play some <laughs> racquetball. No racquetball this season, which is one you of the love, like, love racquetball. it's like the number three reason why Philip is so sad. Like murders, number one. Uh, <laughs> conflict over page number two. Lack of racquetball in homosocial bonding with us, uh, Stan. Number three. It honestly totally, feels like that is like rising up to above the page tension because the tension around page seems to have like not evaporated, but at least been displaced. Um, so it feels like racquetball is the second reason right now. Or at least that Philip like can't muster feeling bad about the page situation in this episode, at least yeah. all the other shit that he's dealing with. Yeah. Well, and like, and then I think this brings us to like Philip. So we get Philip like not being a parent. (laughs) Okay. Step one. Step two is okay, Elizabeth and Paige get home. And then Philip is trying to sort of like tell Elizabeth like all of the stuff. And he's trying to like, I think like be a version of honest with her. He's trying to do his est self to Elizabeth, which makes me feel sad for him quite honestly but and then and elizabeth (laughs) she's not really listening to him first she says to him like i'm i'm like worried about you you're not you're not seeing clearly because like he hasn't told martha about gene and he hasn't told Mm -hmm. martha that like he like did the thing that he was the like reason why gene has been found and elizabeth's like you need to tell her but like Elizabeth's not really paying attention when she does kind of clue in. She's like, you're like, you're not seeing clearly something's wrong. So she's parroting the line that we got from Gabriel, but it doesn't feel like a line that's been fed to her by Gabriel. Right. It feels like this is an insight that Elizabeth has had. And, and yet she's also not really listening to him. She has no interest in this stuff. Really. I mean, I feel like, Unless it's necessary in a utilitarian sense, it's just basically yammering. It just slows down basically what needs to be done, and it's, like, just annoying, you know? Yeah, and I think, John, to an earlier point you made, it's, like, 
she could join in with Arkady and the other folks of the resident tour, like making fun of this self-indulgent self-help bullshit when she literally like had to have her mom smuggled across the Berlin wall to like Mm. see her one last time before she dies. So there's just like the gravity of it. And there's both like the gravity of that, which is maybe emotional and maybe utilitarian for Elizabeth's purpose, or like that's what like breaks down her general like commitment to just doing the work. And like Philip being sad about the work that they do. Yeah. It's just so extraneous and extra to her and unnecessary to her and harmful for what they're ultimately meant to do. And like plays, plays on all of the Mm -hmm. criticism she's had of the way that Philip has become American um, over their history before the show starts and their history during the show itself. And like thus Philip's admission is so broken up to Elizabeth about how bad he feels. It's broken up first of all, by the cutting back and forth to Paige, like listening to her truth of her body and calling pastor Tim. Um, and then gets cut at like cut off fully at the end by Elizabeth being like, we need to go listen to this Reagan speech to the evil empire speech. So it's like, there is actually no room for Philip to do any of this emoting in the supposed family unit where hypothetically he could do so. He, he's growing more desperate as the situation with the Russians is growing more desperate. So remember, this is before the turn to Gorbachev and Glasnost and Perestroika. This is like, you know, this is a very scary moment. The, the day after comes out that year, probably, right? Somewhere around there. And it was really a terrifying, like, you know, it was a scary Right. You had an unstable Soviet leadership and a crazy person running America. Right. Who was basically making like over before, like Trump. And we just got used to hearing that every single day. It doesn't matter anymore. It was actually scary. <laughs> yeah. when Reagan would, when Reagan would lobby a threat. It was like, whoa, because we hadn't heard anything like that in a very long time. Right. Even Nixon wouldn't. You know, it was too cagey and whatever to, to, to <laughs> say the kind of things. Reagan said scary things and he was disassociated from reality. And it was kind of like, whoa. Right. So at the same time that's happening, Philip is becoming less and less kind of like able to do those things that yeah. at least now it seems like need to be done more than ever. Right. Cause it's not um, two years from now. Yeah. I mean, in the, the evil empire speech is one of the like height, the, the most heightened yeah. points of tension. Right, yeah. To your point. And John, good, good memory um, or good, <laughs> you know, call the day after does indeed air in November 83. I mean, just imagine I was 13 years old and I'm at my parents. We all watched that. And it was fucking terrifying. You know, it's like when you're 13, you don't understand what all that is. You know, it's like what, you know, there's a bomb big enough that could just kill all of us. And like, you know, right. And like a level property and trees and animals and stuff for miles and miles and miles. And people are sick for decades after that. It's like because of that, you know. OK, should we talk about Paige a little bit more? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> John, what are your thoughts on Paige in, in this episode? I feel like you've been waiting to be on an episode with us where we like, where <laughs> I know about what's going on with Paige. So I want to like give you first blush of, of, of Paige today. At least openly. And this of course gets back to how much is Elizabeth consciously feeling her feelings and how much is she emoting towards others but Paige seems much more emotionally affected by meeting elizabeth's yeah. grandma by be- meeting her grandma than elizabeth does meeting her mom you know and like we cut from elizabeth watching her mom like leave go or go outside of the of the hotel that they're staying in to Paige in the bathroom praying for 
Paige's grandma. We have, we have, we, we know, <laughs> we're aware. Um, this is why you're going to bring such a great element to Popecast. Um, we have, we have Paige then like calling Pastor Tim at the end. So in yet another time in which she's turning to like her sense of religious, like salvation in response to the turmoil of her personal life and emotional life and familial life and all of that. And then there's something about she knows how wrong it is and like her body knows how wrong it is to be calling Pastor Tim at the end of the episode. But, you know, in the est, like your body knows line, it also knows that even she's going to be trembling while she does it, she has to connect to somebody about this and have some other source of reality check that is outside the bubble of Elizabeth Philip Page that they are trying to seal her into. First of all, I have another theory ship to add for later on. So note that from what you just said. Noted. Second of all, no, I think that like calling attention to the way in which she's trembling at the end and her body, like she knows that she shouldn't be saying any of this. And she also knows that she absolutely has to. And so it's like the body knows, right? Like truth is in the body. And like, there can be multiple truths that are in fundamental tension with each other. And yet like those things all get housed in the body. And I think Paige is a really good example of that. So Esther's right about that then, right? S really does S no, seriously, there's one certain things S does can be not wrong, right? It's possible, yes, right? I mean, absolutely. I feel like this kind of that your body speaks is something that, you know. It's okay, literally the, the basis of my that, entire but, research agenda, but yes. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true, right? You 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 know, right? You internalize anxiety and anger and whatever other feelings you have and stuff like that, and it manifests bodily, right? Yeah. Um, I personally wouldn't like put that as an insight that Est gave to the world, but instead one that like feminist thinkers gave to the world. <laughs> but an Est doesn't feel, it feels like the like eighties, like bougie for, form of feminism, right? Like there's a <laughs> totally like, 100,000%. Like yeah. choice feminism, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, but that's like what this ne- is. Neoliberal feminism, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. San- Sandy's perfect. She's perfect, right? She's the target market for this thing, right? Yeah. Though Sandy's hair does look amazing in this entire episode. Every scene, Sandy like nails it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. She's but the flat, other thing know? about the other thing about Paige that I wanted to uh, to touch on, and that John, something that you said, like. There, she's like deeply affected by meeting her grandmother in a way that catches Elizabeth off guard. And Elizabeth is already caught off guard by the entire thing, right? But so Paige is like, is deeply affected by it. We get the scene of her praying on the toilet, which feels like a place that you shouldn't be praying, but that's like my own, I don't know. God hears everywhere. Sacred and profane, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. God yeah, but I'm just like thinking about there's like a prayer that you say, like religious Jews say a prayer after like after they go to the bathroom. And usually people say it outside of the bathroom. So like there's an interesting thing happening there. Anyway, I guess there's not a lot of privacy in a hotel room in West Berlin or Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> take your pick. <laughs> the other piece about Paige is like when 
Paige and Elizabeth are walking on the street. This is before she meets the grandmother, um, where Elizabeth is like suspicious and making and, and basically doing like counter surveillance maneuvers. She says, like, I thought I saw something, but everything's fine. And Paige's whole body tenses up, like, and you sort of see that happen on screen. So I think like it's not only in these really like big, more like spectacular moments, like with the grandmother or with the calling of Pastor Tim, but also in these like smaller scale instances where you see like Paige experiencing all of the sort of like complications of all this and how her life is being upended, like even in these quieter moments too. It's a great observation. And it makes me think about how we've seen throughout this season, all of these scenes of Elizabeth training her surrogate spy child Hans over how to do like on the street surveillance, counter surveillance. And here she gives a baby lesson in that to Paige, which is not even like really techniques. It's just that this is a thing that I do. Are you think, are you thinking of this all the time? Paige asks her only when I'm working, are you working now? When like, honestly, you know, Elizabeth is working all the time. She is a spy, like 95 to a hundred percent of her, of her life. Um, I think it seems so. like there's that aspect of it. And I mean, the writers have given Paige from the reveal on that it's the way that she always expresses her discontent or her anger or whatever we want to call it towards her parents and towards the situation is always in the register of lies and they're lying. So yeah. it's very much like her, like the being honest, being truthful is yeah. something that is at least the way that she translates all of the very understandable conflict that she's feeling or anger that she's feel that she's feeling towards her parents comes out as they're liars, right? That's what she says yeah. to them. That's what she yells at them. That's what she tells pastor Tim among other things on the phone at the end of the episode, you know, along with, and like, this is a very, the meme of they said the thing where Paige says they're not Americans <laughs> uh, at the end of the episode. Well, yeah, she's she's been robbed of her, of her life. I mean, look, yeah. doesn't know who she is, doesn't know who her parents are. She meets her grandmother who's about to die in some weird hotel that has a sneaker in there, you know, to meet with them. And it's like, right? I mean, she's totally rootless. And it's like, makes sense that the church basically had absorbed her into its ever-loving arms. Because when you're lost, right, the shepherd and the sheep and all that stuff, it's like the, right? It's yeah. like she's shepherd, perfect, right? Shepherd yeah. and daddy, like all in one, yeah. get, you know, your various forms of care. You know, <laughs> um, but just uh, the anger she has that builds, yeah. right? About about the anger toward like then like she just I don't know. Just imagine if you if you saw your parents is completely lying to you all the time about everything. How fucked up that would be, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, when I was like six. And my parents went to my grandparents' Christmas party after they told us that we weren't going this year. I felt betrayed. (laughs) My mom came back. She was wearing stockings. She said, came to say goodnight. And I was like, you went to grandma and grandpa's. I was very angry. I'm still <laughs> mad about it. How did you know? Anyway. What, what, you, what, how did you know? Because my mom does not put on stockings for just like, Mm. walking around the house but they left after we were after they thought we were asleep and i was not asleep <laughs> danielle, danielle. counter espionage I mean, training from an enemy yeah. from an 
on young age. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that's comparable to your parents' life. <laughs> I mean, that's not the same ballpark of thing. Yeah, for sure. You know, it felt like it. Like, uh, <laughs> and, and of course, the thing is that Philip and Elizabeth are being more honest with Paige over the last few episodes than they ever have been in her entire life. Right. And like, it's in that contrast at which everything before that becomes a lie. Right. So it's like the moment at which telling this set of truths to Paige becomes the exposure of an entire, you Mm -hmm. know, 15 years of lies that just kind of heightens the tension. I think, I don't know if Paige, like, I don't know if as a character Paige could articulate that specific thing. Yeah. Like that's the Mm -hmm. dynamic that's happening from the outside. Two, two things about that. One, um, she, you know, Henry is oblivious and she figured out some stuff and they were kind of forced to start telling her it. Yeah. And secondly, Philip has this great line to, to Gabriel where he says, well, you're the one who wanted her to get back in touch with her roots. So <laughs> coming, coming from you that we don't want to let her see your grandmother. And so the other thing is they have to start telling her the truth because they want to groom her to become a potential agent as well. Mm-hmm. And that really pisses off Philip, right? Absolutely. Um, well, and I think like that's the thing. And maybe this is a way to sort of like, move from st- move from page into talking a little bit about some of the other things that are happening with other characters in this episode but just on a final note with regard to page like that's the thing that i came away from the episode like thinking about which is like okay page's life has been like thrown up in the air but what is she doing to like one her future as like a potential agent which like elizabeth is peppering into like oh you'll never have to do anything like that in the mini training in the street, like all of that. But then also like what happened? Like Paige has literally done the one thing that, that they were like, you can't do this. Like if this were any, anybody else, right. They would kill them. It's over. Yeah. yeah. 100%, and yeah. I, I can't envision a scenario where they kill Paige. So I'm interested to see like what, what happens here? I mean, listen, they haven't even killed Martha yet, which is honestly bonkers. Um, <laughs> the cliffhanger of the of the end of this season is just like feels really gaping to me. Both what happens to Martha and what happens to Paige alike. That's a both and right there. <laughs> oh no! <All> right. <laughs> oh, John's taking notes. Uh oh. Uh oh. All right, we're down to Danielle. I have to share one cannoli. You're we're- one. That means that means you can say it's both okay. and you, you can say and. Right. <laughs> like, you can say both and you can say and, but you can't both say each thing or, or then or I'm up. So be, be very very careful now. It's like having no timeouts. Sports game, right. Right. So okay, let's, let's go to talk about Stan and the yes. FBI and Zineda. I think I was safe there. Right. So Stan <laughs> is at his most fucking bullshit um, Stan in this episode where he is ex- at the exact same. T- oh, no. He's at the exact same time. He is great at his job and fucking terrible at his job. Right. Like the epitome of of Uh great and terrible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a certain phrase we could use to capture, which I am apparently not not allowed to say. We're avoiding it. Because I don't want to bend over. And terrible. He's great and he's terrible. You don't need to say he's both great and terrible. (laughs) Okay, that that got us back. We're now plus two. 
Uh, so yeah, no, I didn't say the two words. Again. <laughs> it was three words between those two words. That's fine. You guys, you guys need some better strategies, right? Memorize like three baked ways of thinking that you two rely on. I'm just trying to break you out of these bad habits. That's anyway, right. John on. is oh. nothing if not trying to uh, change the right. thought patterns and consciousnesses of his exactly. friends. I'm trying, to save I'm trying to save political theory for I myself. Know. Okay. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. Definitely American political thought is where to go for that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is 70% us oh, laughing. Man. Yeah. I made the prediction it's this the most will be our longest ever. episode ever and we are well on track for that. Oh, That's one of the uh, most true statements I've ever heard in my entire anyway all right so go on okay so, so stan great at his job terrible at his job this is the epitome of that where he is at the same time like about to be punished by gad and also he is like basically given like carte blanche by the assistant, by the deputy AG. And yes. so it's, if Gad is the, like, tell when Stan is bad at his job, then the AG is the tell when Stan is good at his job. And so they're, like, each of them are in this episode and, and like, in this fundamental tension with each other. Well, it's also Reagan-era deregulation, for sure, right? In other words, in fact, isn't there a line in there somewhere where they talk about, like, you know, regulation and bureaucratization? Yep. Right. I know you hate all that red tape, Stan, so we're just going to rip it all off and let you roam, roam wild like you want. Because Reagan understands that the government is full of red tape Correct. and he's not that kind and of guy. And they show his picture, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. somewhere around that whole speech. Like, yeah, it's, they show his, like, it's right, the it's right after that when yes. the deputy AG then walks into Gad's office. And then, like, we get the Reagan frames, as he right. has been all series, framing Gad's office. Because Gad loves Reagan. So remember, you have this this old institution, the FBI, that runs and, and has populated by people from layered moments in Amer in recent American history where their agents became agents and were acculturated a certain set of rules. And you have this Reagan thing where you strip out the top layer of all the bureaucracies and put in your Reaganites, right? And so 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 what's his name? Gad is kind of like you know the institutional man. Right. Mm -hmm. He's just a, the affront to his authority is unacceptable. Right. It doesn't matter that he found this amazingly important asset. Right. It's like the breaking of procedures is unforgivable. Right. And if, if Carter were still president, I would say, um, you know, Stan will be out on his He's ear. Gone. No yeah. way. They're just no way. They're just letting that go. Right. No chance. Not but just now, letting it go, but valorizing it. Right. If you ever get into any trouble with the red tape, with the bureaucracy here, just come to me and I'll make it go away. Right. That's the WAG's <laughs> promise. Yeah, I'll, pu I'll push the button. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like totally, totally. you now, you now are de facto yeah. director of the FBI going outside of it. But I, I think right. your point is really well taken, John, and is captured when Gad literally asks Stan, do you give a shit about the bureau, right? Like not about it. That's it's specifically the bureau, like that he is asking right. about not, you know, the rules, the regulations, not about Gad himself, not about like the rule of law is specifically, do you give a shit about this institution and its rules and its hierarchies and its procedures and all its red tape? And like, we know that Stan doesn't right witnessed him fucking Nina for half of you know for any long stretch of episodes, which you know he lightly admits to here with Gad. Complicated, yeah, like classic. Yeah, but I, I don't I don't agree with you about that. I think that that is that is like standard bro largesse as part of the FBI that technically you're not supposed to bang the assets or whatever, but 
that is in that now you get fired immediately for that. But that there are instances in which that could be overlooked in that period, I think. And that's just him being a bro. I swear. I, that's, that's my take. No, I, I think that's, I think that's, that's a legitimate. It's worse to us now than, than in 1984. That, I mean, 1983, that's a horrific, it looks horrific to us now, but I think that's just, oh, uh, you know, that's kind of what happens. It gets messy. You know, yeah. sometimes you, you know, so, sometimes you bone the assets, you know, I, I generally agree with that. And I certainly think that like Chris Amador would have been like, yes, Dan, get it. Um, with, with, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, but like, I think Gad is so much of an institutionalist and is so over Stan's yeah. bullshit that he actually is, doesn't view this as one of the instances in which um, it'd be fine for a path, like free pass in part because the, the aspect of bro code that Stan has uh, violated is once the asset is gone, you got to let him go. And Stan is just obsessive. He's built this entire construct, not about, I don't think not about to like have Oleg be an asset for the FBI. Like that's, that's a, that's the byproduct that's created for him to try to sell Gad or sell the deputy AG on the whole thing. Stan's primary motivation has been, I need to get somebody, Zenieda is convenient, to trade for Nina. And this, he's like been off from the whole beginning because as Gad kind of revels in telling Stan, no, we're not trading for Nina. We're trading for the CIA officer that was picked up in um, Soviet Union. So like there's a way in which Stan, this is the good at his job, bad at his job. He's good at bro code, but bad at bro code because he couldn't let it go. Well, and I think the thing that's so telling here, right, is that like, and I think a parallel that we have between Stan and Philip neither of whom is able to see 10 feet in front of them, which Stan is so blinded Mm. by the Nina of it all that he can't realize how inappropriate like that request, that sort of like that piece and how that is the thing that like, I think ultimately sets Gad off. And then also it's like even more, it's even more apparent when he doubles down on it with the deputy AG. And he's like, we got to like, we got to get Nina out. And the deputy AG is like, no, sorry, you'll figure it out. You know, like that ultimately it's like he, he's like, like Philip cannot see 10 feet in front of him. He can only see but his, his single-minded pursuit of his own self-interest redounded to the gr- tremendous advantage of the agency in the country. Cause they got this amazingly important Russian asset through his bumbling and his blindness. It's like, yeah, it, it backfired on him on himself because yeah. he doesn't get Nina out, whatever, which is cockamamie plan to begin with. But <laughs> from the point of view, then the, the, the assistant AG is like, yo, look at these receipts. I mean, <laughs> who cares about this messy, you know, it, it just reminds me of so much stuff from that period. The Contras in Nicaragua, that the same theme is playing yeah. over and over again, where it's like this constriction of a malaise ridden encumbered society that the new deal era that ended with Carter kind of forced on the people needs to be unshackled and, and the great American Eagle spirit can soar. Like, <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to get in your way anymore, Stan, right? You, you've basically brought us big game mm-hmm. and we can't worry about these little stupid rules, you know, that small men like Gad are too concerned with, you know, from the, and by the way, the, 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 you know, that's Trump in a certain way, right? The Trump thing is that to an extreme degree. It's like, right. Yeah. His argument is always look at the results I brought for you and don't worry about the, you know, 
right? Any of these like small things like undermine democracy and, you know, violence and so on. doesn't matter. It well, he was just, like you know. forged in the fires of the yeah. neoliberal 80s, right? Which like, so to right. your point right. is there. Okay. And Roy Cohn, Roy Cohn, who's the master of it all, was his. Was I'll his kill you. <laughs> <laughs> From the eagle soaring across the, like, across the purple waves of grain to Amber the. waves of grain. <laughs> isn't it purple? Oh, Purple Mountain's Majesty. <laughs> Damn it. I meant, I meant like Nietzsche's eagle, you fucking Christine. <laughs> I'm not that stupid American patriotic. <laughs> God, you think I'm a fucking idiot, don't you? <laughs> Like, I don't read those books that I've read very carefully, okay? I know them all. Okay, that's, that's one of them, right? Touche, touche. But from Nietzsche's Eagle to the Golden Gulag. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I will get this transition if it kills you got me. It. You got it. You got it. Nailed it. Let's, let's, oh yeah, nailed it. <laughs> from the Nietzschean Eagle to the Gulag. <laughs> Ten, 10 out of 10, the landing, you know, all the judges agree. Let's go to Anton and Nina. <laughs> okay. I'll save my other stand thought for Glasslin. Glasslin, I suppose. <laughs> okay, Daniel, yes. what, what in the spirit of either the American or Nietzschean eagle do we need to know <laughs> about Anton and Nina? I think the thing that, and this connects us back to sort of where we started this discussion about truth and the body is like, we get this exchange between Anton and Nina and Tone. I can't say it in that way. Um, at the, at the sort of last exchange that they have in this episode where he's like, you just have to sort of like let go of the pleasures of the body. And once, like, once you let go of them, then they can't have like control over you anymore. And so this idea that like not only does truth lie in the body, but also that like that is the source or site of power and power as control feels like a really interesting sort of like cap on this discussion of, of like truth and the body that we started with Est. It's like a reversal of Thoreau, right? Thoreau says, you know, you yeah. have basically your, your, uh, you know, the, you know, I'm, I'm in this jail cell. They imprison my body. They can never imprison my mind or my soul. Right. And sort of like the, in, this is an inversion of that here in this episode. Est is kind of the opposite of that. Right. Um, um, can I pick up on the says, Thoreau point for a second, John? I think like sure. the first Baklanov version of this is very much in keeping with that because Baklanov tells Nina they mm. only have my body, right? Which is the echo of like the Thoreau point that you're highlighting there. Right, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, but I, inter- exactly I interrupted. You. No, no, yeah. he says he says exactly what Thoreau says there, right? But then the episode troubles that a little bit because Est is not about that at all, right? Right. It's not, it's, it's basically saying that's bullshit basically. Right. Uh, and then here in this, in this, uh, interaction between him and Nina, he's like giving her advice about how to remain free, Mm -hmm. right? Don't let them do this to you and that to you. And if you do those things and you still have some, again, that's very Gnostic, right? You still have some essence deep inside of you. That's still yours. And that's, you still possess, right? That's the essence of Gnostic religion, right? That the glory bur- uh, glows inside of you and only you alone, right? Kind of thing, right? Anton Baklanov's positioning within that is like intriguing, right? Because we know him as one of the few Jewish characters of the Americans, right? Like he's a refusenik. Mm. Um, and yet he's offering like that particular 
uh, Thoreau and or Gnostic yeah. right, uh, expression of his self or his cores or, or his individuality in the face of the supposed to be totalizing power of the Soviet Union and of the Soviet Union's like prison labor system and like all of these sorts of things, which Nina well, I mean, is like caught up in and trying to f- articulate some sort of distance from or escape or freedom from. And it's, I don't know, Nina's like positioning this episode. Like, I think they do a good job um, marking her confusion about how to relate to everything and to what she's supposed to do, what she wants to do, what she's, the mission she's supposed to run against Baklanov, how she actually feels about Baklanov. Like Nina is, you know, continually placed in these circumstances that prevent her from uh, like articulating or developing a clear ethical course through things. And that yeah. continues to be true here. Mm-hmm. I mean, with very few exceptions, basically emigres who adopt the American way of life are always the most enthusiastic defenders of all of its essences. Right. Um, with very few exceptions, you know? Uh, so he's reflecting that kind of view, I think. Right. And I agree with that, John. And Nina's speaking English to Antone and like the ability of Antone to speak Mm. English back to Nina, that is one of the key moments in the bond between them to that point. But to the Nina of it all, right? Like, I think like we get some great Nina in this episode, John, and, and you said this like sort of between all of these different positions, which is often where Nina finds herself. And also a version in this episode that like we've questioned the authenticity of this question earlier on in this season. And I'm still left with a question about it, but she's like, I don't know like what this is for, right? This is where book on of like comes in with the line about, about not giving like about like not giving full control. Right. We have talked about the fact that with Nina's other roommate, whose name I have forgotten, Evie, Evie, I was going to say Hannah, which felt wrong. Um, with Evie, like, again, we get some, like, she, it seems like Nina's telling the truth and also Nina's using her truth to manipulate. I could see a version of that happening here. And also like, it is Nina's truth and she is like, like questioning this. And she is sort of like, like having this sort of inner turmoil and like, what is it all worth? Which like, if we get, the parallel between Philip and Stan around not being able to see 10 feet in front of them. There's also a parallel between Philip and Nina about like inner turmoil around the, like that is like linked in and through the like required missions or the requirements of the mission. I mean, for my network theory of the American. <laughs> uh, I mean, and that's even depicted visually like that final yeah. scene between Anton and Nina. There's, like such a cool blue light, like it's like, you know, that, and that's of course, like partly the environment and, you know, the fact that they're in the Urals or Siberia or wherever. Um, But like, I think it's really accentuated in how they lit that particular scene between them. It's one of like the coldest feeling lightings that we see in the Americans. I'll take it. I'll take it. Any other Nina, uh, Antone, Thoughts? No. Shall we shall we go with a perhaps closing question to the still opening segment of Not Quite Great Books? Danielle, you admitted to me when we got on uh, Zencaster before recording or before John joined us. So this is also be a, a surprise for John. 
uh, as well, that you didn't particularly like this episode. No, I didn't like it for a few reasons. I think in the first place, like the, and I was thinking back to the other episodes that Keller has joined us on, right? Like, the finale of season one, the finale of season two are these big, like elaborate set pieces. And there's like the, the car chase and Elizabeth gets shot. And then there's like all the stuff with, um, like just like all the, the way that season two ends and upstate New York and like the fight and, and the knife and all of that. And this is a much more subdued. It's not as spectacular, which I think I was expecting, but then also there's something about this finale that's so disjointed. There's a lot of cutting between different people, different scenes. Philip is like doing, he's like in three or four different disguises throughout this episode. Like we're not, it's not clear what he's doing before he does it. When oftentimes, unless it's a cold open, we usually understand where Philip or Elizabeth is in their disguise and like what it's connected to. And this, it like, it it doesn't do that. So it's like the disjointedness and the um like the lack of spectacle. But then also the fact, and I mentioned this earlier, it's not clear what's happened with Martha until the last like exchange between Philip and Elizabeth. And that was something that was really jarring and frustrating to me. Those are my reasons. Thoughts? <laughs> Accepted. I accepted. <laughs> I love this episode in part, I think, actually, for some of the reasons that Danielle didn't like it as much as the other finales that, you know, the set piece is arguably Eugene's murder by Philip, which is like the big closing set piece for this episode. And I think that that is in keeping with the emotional tonality of this particular season of the Americans. And like, I appreciated yeah. that. Um, I think the lack of resolution on the Martha point, the lack of resolution that you pointed out, the cliffhanger with Paige calling pastor Tim, uh, Daniel, yeah. like I, you know, in general, I appreciate, you know, TV or movies or whatever that aren't necessarily resolving every single question and kind of communicating yeah. how I'm supposed to think about those questions. Like I appreciate the uh, somewhat disjointed, like somewhat riffier version. John is laughing at my um, extreme. You would, be a a you would be a terrible S man. Terrible. Like I know. literally the worst, <laughs> worst possible type of person for that. Would be um, honestly, that's a hundred percent true. Um, I thought, I thought you were, uh, Laughing at my pretentiousness of this take. No, um, no. That's also that. Uh, given, yeah, fair. I don't need to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciated the strange structural things that this particular finale was doing in relation to the season that had come up to this point. And I, one of the reasons I say that is because we talked about this with Lily Gorin um, back in the Stingers episode, Danielle, yeah. that in some ways the climactic finale of the season is Paige's confrontation of Philip and Elizabeth, right? Like that's the thing that normally we would get in the next to last episode or the last episode of a season. Yeah. And they, you know, pulled the rug out from under us, as we talked about with Lily, much like Philip and Elizabeth get the rug pulled out from under them, that Paige confronts them, that that yeah. thing to which the season has been building happens there. And so yeah. I think then that having this somewhat more fractured, more uh, irresolute finale is 
like keeping with the spirit of the season in that sense and keeping with the disjointed way that Philip feels at the end of the episode or the end of the season and, or the way that Paige feels as well. No, I think that's totally valid. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and also you're absolutely right to recall our conversation with Lily, how that like the page reveal is the, is like the emotional and spiritual culmination of this season and so it is like if you put that in perspective it is impressive that there is a ratcheting up of stakes in this episode i just like listen i like a marvel movie i like a third act that just like tells me how to feel and i didn't know how to feel at the end of this and (laughs) that was a messy third act with a 49 minute long nonsensical fight scene and everyone has a clear good or bad status at the end that's how they work right (laughs) yeah sometimes there's a dragon too (laughs) if we're lucky (laughs) yeah what's the problem with that (laughs) thank you exactly that's that's, that's bad john oh you like this complex got to figure it out yourself thing better not interested yes yeah john did you see the movie tar no but my you know my wife's a you know she was like a singer and stuff Mm -hmm. and so she saw it and we've been we got into a big discussion about it here it's so funny because jackie really really loved it my colleagues all hated it. And yeah. She's not an educator and they are. So she doesn't give a shit about these things that would like trigger an educator. Apparently, I was not she, triggered. She I fucking loved it. I just watched it yesterday. She, so. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. She loved it. Yeah. yeah it was, I, I, got a huge argu- I got a huge argument with my friends here because they were all preaching about like how it's bad teaching or whatever. And I'm like, not every movie is about your fucking career, That's man. It's like, you know. The least essential criteria on which to judge that movie that I could think of. <laughs> yeah, I need to see it. Jackie really loved it, but she loves that music and she's in like a really good competitive choir and stuff and they sing oh. those kinds of pieces and all that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would go to a I would go to a, yeah. a choir concert. Well, Danielle, Danielle and I have teased the possibility of convening uh, uh, many of our guests and friends uh, round table <laughs> on TARS. So you can you can be on the invite list as well, John. Maybe Jackie would come too. And oh, Jackie, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. She, because, you know, it's interesting. You know, she knows so much more about music than I do. So her take on a movie like that is going to be very different than yeah. ours. You know what I mean? Well, Even I though saying- ours are all good. Uh, Ours are going to be different because we have different politics and stuff, but we're yeah. still in the same, we're still in the same type of conversation. Like I think like part of why John is asking you this question is because I, we were talking about this also before when I revealed to John that I did not like this episode, we were also mm. then talking about tar and I was like, I have no interest in seeing it at all. Uh, but I said, like, I would obvi- I would watch it for for the pod. But, like, I'm not interested in a movie that, like, is going to, like, make me feel complex things. I just, like, give me a rom-com or a Marvel movie. Like, I just want soul bubblegum. That's it. I have enough other stuff that is not that. So I just want that. <laughs> this show must be, this America must be hard for you then because it's never that really, right? No, but it is enjoyable. And it's, like, it's it's smart. And I love Spycraft. <laughs> yeah. I think that's part of why I'm like, I'm brushing up against this yeah. episode is because like, because there isn't this resolution yeah. because they're, because like we're at the end of the season and there's no resolution in these very specific things that I've been like looking for some resolution for. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's mm-hmm. where, that's where I am. What, one more question on this issue, Danielle, do you think that, I will, A, I don't know if this is an accurate reading of it, and I think I understand why the show does this, but 
the actual scene of Elizabeth meeting her mother is almost an afterthought on this episode. Like they don't overplay it or overshadow it in a way that they very easily could have. It's a very deep moment, right? At the time. And, you know, uh, her mom recognizing the pages there being like, you know, giving Elizabeth the very self-justification Elizabeth is constantly articulating in the season of, I knew it was important to let you go and not stop you. You were going to do important things, right? Like I had to let you go. Um, everything was at stake, right? I had to tell you everything was at stake is, is her mother's line. So there's, there's that emotional intensity of it. But just in terms of like time spent with Elizabeth's mom, it's like 90 seconds of this episode, right? It's and we very get, fast. You know, and we get instead right. the 10, 15 seconds of Elizabeth watching from the window as her mother in the wheelchair is wheeled out and wheels wheeled into the car, which of course is reminiscent of Elizabeth engaging in spycraft, right? So it's another, like yeah. her spy self continually blocks or obstructs or like skews her familial self in kind of the most traditional sense. And like, there's just a way in which the actual, again, what could have been a major emotional climax of the season or of the episode doesn't get that presentation, I don't think. Well, yeah, and I think, like, part of what I was laughing about when I was reading the IMDb summary about, like, Paige and Elizabeth being in treacherous territory is that, like, I think there is a version of this finale where, like, the visit with the mother is a spectacle. It is a... There are, like, spycraft things that have to happen. Like, that there's a version of it that kind of has the things that I'm wanting in a finale that also, like, maybe gives some more runway to, like, Elizabeth and her mother. Even though we get this moment of Elizabeth sort of, like, falling into the daughter role, right? She falls to her knees and, mm-hmm. like, she's, she's like, they have this sort of, like, catharsis moment between the two of them. We've been joking around this episode about Elizabeth, like, not not partaking in the American, like, sort of like indulgences and i think like this is elizabeth's indulgence but it can only be 90 seconds long otherwise it will really start to impact her but Paige is not elizabeth right and and so she doesn't deprive she doesn't deprive Paige of this at all she understands that like for me i need to do this and i need to make it brief and that's just the way we are but my daughter's american and she's gonna she's gonna have the full-blown experience as much as I can give it to her. You know? yeah. Watch Elizabeth called out in advance, right? Like she's not like the grandmas that, you know, right back yeah. in America, right? She says quite explicitly, but yeah, I think that's a really perceptive insight that she lets Paige have the American over sentimentalized version of this yeah. experience. Which By the way, is- it's hilarious in the, very, in the very beginning when they're at the, they're at the airport and, and they're embracing and she's like, he, Philip says, I'm sorry, I never got to meet your mother. And she goes, you wouldn't <laughs> have liked her. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I love so that. Great. I love so that. It's so, she's about to fucking die. And it's like, that's what she says. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and you wouldn't have liked yeah. her. You know, it's so, I mean, it's funny. But, and maybe this is sort of the point to wrap it up on, like, right, she lets Paige have the over-sentimentalized moment of this. Um, It's not the way that she experiences it. But also, Paige's subsequent reactions, the prayer, the, like, like, that 
she is impacted by this. And then the like phone call, the return home, the lying, and then the phone call to Pastor Tim is like all evidence that to me, Paige is not prepared for any of this. Right. And like that they've actually done a really bad job. They've, they've done a great job secretly not training her and a terrible <laughs> job training her in the ways that it seems like a spy needs to be trained. I love it. The body knows we're, yeah. we've come to the end of the main discussion. Um, let's head to the segments. New record for long as it took for us to get to the segments. I love it. Yeah. Danielle, <laughs> let's do a check-in on the dossier, which you want to take a victory lap on. I want to take a victory on, on like Gene, the RIP Gene, obviously pour one out, but I have been suspicious of Gene from the jump. Now, have I been exactly suspicious in the right way? No, but I'm still going to take this as a win. (laughs) (laughs) I'm frustrated that I can't take Martha and her murder as a win in this episode. Yeah, what what is your prediction now that you've had a an irresolution well, I, episode of Martha as to what's coming up? Like what's your now what's the Martha dossier prediction? Well, I think that it's not going to be Philip who kills her. It's got to be like if he didn't do it at the end of the last episode, it's got to be I think Elizabeth but someone else. Okay. Maybe they engineer it like that like Paige finds out that her father's having like a secret affair and then like this is like her induction into like full scale. <laughs> Wait, so the, the Dase entries page kills Martha. I, that's a wish. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's, there's a wish, but then there's also a, a prediction. You predict that somebody other than Philip will kill her. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's my right, formal prediction. Good. My wish is that the, someone is page. <laughs> Your official, it's important to make that distinction on the podcast. Mac it to between a, your official prediction and then your speculative prediction. That's very, I'm glad you, I'm really glad you clarified that for the, for the fans out there, you know? Oh, man. What else do we You're have in the dossier, Daniel? Jean, Martha. I mean, I guess like Zineda as like, I already took this victory lap, but I'll take it again. Like, Zineda as a double agent is something I called early on. I don't know. You don't show up randomly in a shipping crate without, like, some prep before that. (laughs) So I'm actually kind of shocked that there are not any further dossier entries. Danielle really must not have liked this episode. I have some dossier questions for you then. Okay. Yeah. What about, what do you think, if anything, happens with the Stan Oyek situation? Oh, I mean, I, I think I think that we in the next season see that like when there's not a woman involved, Stan is worse at uh, negotiation and and like entrapment. <laughs> I think he like fails at this mission because like without being able to hold Nina over Oleg's head and and like his power to release Nina, which by the way, Oleg, like you're an idiot. Okay, like you're an idiot for sure. Um, I think we sort of see the limitations of Stan's ability to convince or persuade. Okay, so we have as well, Danielle, the big cliffhanger of the season is Paige calls Pastor Tim. What's in store for Pastor Tim and Alice? My thought is that Pastor Tim just like doesn't believe her and like and... Like, Pastor Tim doesn't believe her, but, like, thinks that something is wrong. Like, that, I think, like, I had said er- in an earlier episode that, like, 
that like maybe Pastor Tim thinks her parents are abusive and that this is like a way into that. Which is, I mean, appropriate with like the whole satanic panic 80s. Exactly. Uh, Further question, Danielle. <laughs> what about Nina? What's her f- in store for her future? I'm just going to, I have lots of dossier questions for you this week. I don't know. I, I, I don't know because I don't know how committed to like actually getting the like information out of Baklanov she actually is anymore. And I think she's kind of resigned to like being in this prison, which she probably should be. Not like I think she should be in prison. Right. I'm an abolitionist, but that like she probably should be power over her location at this point. Okay. John, any questions, any predictions you want to get Danielle either officially or speculatively on record for? No, I think you've covered them all. These are all good. All right. Then let us head into glass. And we've touched on uh, this character a little bit so far this episode. Any further thoughts from anybody on Sandy, um, either in relationship to her and Stan dividing up their stuff or to her proposition that is both sexual and not sexual to Philip at the end? I didn't read it as sexual at all. But they're at the sex graduate sex seminar. The whole conversation is about sex. Yeah, but I didn't read it to be like a proposition to like bang Philip. Yeah, it's not a national concert. It's a fucking conference, man. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Things like that do not make you horny, okay? That's oh like, no, that's I, like, you know. No, that that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that like there's a they would never actually have sex, right? So this mm-hmm. is like a like avatar of what them having sex would be like. I didn't read it like that. I see your, I see your like interpretation, but I didn't read it like that. I think like, okay, then we can, we can set aside my bad interpretation, but what about like the actual kind of like proposition that she makes to Philip to be totally and radically honest with one another? Philip is so good at rebuffing and shielding and and insulating himself from any threat, right. Of Of that intimacy could lead of any kind could lead to, exposure that could be dangerous and detrimental that he starts to sense, oh boy, this is, this is a problem, you know, which she knows my neighbors, she knows Stan, she knows Elizabeth. I can't be telling her anything, you know? Yeah. And also I feel like on a couple of different levels, right. It's like on the one hand, it's like she's Stan's ex-wife and like the version of Philip who's at these things is Stan's friend. Right. So there's like that sort of like, I think, complication on the on the other hand on the second hand he's a spy and like lives a lie right so there's like and john you had brought this up earlier about the sort of like the maybe that it is like the temptation and the like the sweet temptation of of like like laying everything bare and then also like never being able to to actually, to actualize that. I mean, I was put off by the proposition, like to your question, I was put off by the proposition as was Philip, but like it feels very consistent with Est. And I think what Sandy is communicating is she sees in Philip, at least in this moment, someone who's taking Est seriously or as seriously as one could. Um, And there's something like vulnerable about that. Yeah, I think it's the vulnerability that's notable, both for Sandy and for Philip there at the end of the episode, right? Like, 
Philip, I don't know. There's something in the way that Matthew Reese plays it in that moment where he's just a tiny bit tempted by Sandy's offer, I think Mm -hmm. at the, at the end. And I think that that's, um, that's interesting. And again, like this is Sandy fully embracing the S-ness like, okay, I, this is an acquaintance at best. There's this weird shit that's going on because he is the only friend of my ex-husband or soon to be ex-husband. Right. And yet she's just like, let's do this total radical honesty thing with one another. So again, it's the, it's her as the paragon of S that I think is particularly notable. But then what do we think about that scene between Stan and Sandy when they're dividing the stuff up between them from the house? That scene made me sad because Stan is so bad at joking and like doesn't know where he wants to be joking and where he wants to be serious. Like when he's like, Oh, that rocking chair. I remember you breastfeeding Matthew. And it's like, dude, not appropriate. Like this is, this is like one of those things that's not appropriate. I don't know. I was just like, you actually want Stan to actually be funny. At the moment when he's about to get divorced to his wife of many years, well, no, I the don't. mother of his children, and they're splitting up the stuff, and their sentimental rocking chair, and he kept the plants alive, and you know, no, the, I don't the, want him to be funny, but I want him to know that this is not a time for humor. But she well, eventually and uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. That's he's just trying to he doesn't know. know how to act in that circumstance. It made me sad. Who, who does? Who does? Man, it made me sad. It made me sad for Stan. Listen, I've never had I've never had <laughs> I've never had a good split up the stuff after a breakup conversation. Okay, I don't remember enjoying any of those or <laughs> acting appropriately or being funny. Were you funny. trying to funny. crack <laughs> jokes about your ex probably? I don't remember. Maybe, maybe. I don't. I mean, was I thinking to myself? Wow, it'd be great if I had a couple zingers for this event. <laughs> no, but but in in dealing with the awkwardness <laughs> that I maybe tell some. Some badly executed jokes, probably. Yeah, I, I mean, just that way. once the rocking yeah. chair on the weekend, like, that's all, you know. Yeah, it's, that's, you know, you're a little tough on the guy, you know. <laughs> the, plants, the plants alive. I actually, know? I found that incredibly endearing about Stan. I get that, like, yeah. he can't, the plants. He, he would never know this, but, like, that's his way of trying to keep, like, his relationship with Sandy alive, yeah. one presumes. Yeah. Um, and so there's something kind of sweet about that, and that he's like, I went and bought plant food, and it's like, this motherfucker's never been in a like nursery, plant nursery, any time in his life before, but made it to get the plant food, which I did think was was adorable. And um, Sandy recognizes that. Sandy's like, okay, cool. I'll take this plant. You take that plant. Listen, I am on board for Plant Daddy Stan, but like, <laughs> it's, it's like Jokester Stan that made me feel sad. Yeah, Stan. Okay. Very rarely is he intentionally funny. All of the stand humor is unintentional. Um, like, funny, yeah. have the chair that you breastfed Matthew in on the weekends. Um, doesn't quite work. Okay. Uh, any other thoughts on Henry? He gets left out of the trip and is not happy about it. He's sad. Also sad. And then, but he's got his, like, bro daddy to play weird football game with so i guess that's like a kind of win for henry i think i've already stated my opinion about this uh <laughs> you're, 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 you guys are making too much out of this you know he hangs out at the neighbors and plays football <laughs> with them you know it's, it's when, his when surrogate dad <laughs> philip is comforted comforted by hearing okay henry's happy he's having a good time he likes doing that and he likes stan and right you know um, i mean 
Very true, but still somewhat sad. So, you know, just keeping in the theme of this episode. John, you have a line on here that says KGB lines. Yeah, I don't know what lines was referring to there. But I do (laughs) want to note that we do have this KGB situation, which for Oleg is both a oh shit moment, but also a Stan and I were right moment about, you know, there's this uh, order that Oleg, that uh, Arkady gathers the whole staff. A, a lacking episode for Lev Gorn. He only gets this one scene. Um, but yeah, but he, we, nails it, he nails it. He, of course from he the nails back. it. He's Lev. From, from the back, though. Yeah. From, the, from the You see the back of his head, not even the front, yeah. right? I mean, Lev doesn't need the face. Like, he can do it all in posture and voice. Like, you know, the greatest actor C- of our generation. Cigarette in a glass. Cigarette in a glass. Cigarette in a glass. He can do it. <laughs> but uh, he gives this line about how there's going to be no assassinations or threatened assassinations without the explicit permission <laughs> of the uh, residentura and the very relevant directorates at the center um, in direct response to Oyeg's terrible beard, uh, you know, fake attack on Zenyeda from a couple episodes ago where he bonked Stan on the head with a gun, which was hilarious. Oh my God. And that, 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 that woman is like, wait, there have been illegal operations, and the camera immediately go immediately goes to burn off. Right? Especially like, because Tatiana yeah. and Oleg are like starting to like come together and yeah. become friends, and you know, there's this great secret that's this gulf between them. Right, right. But that's really funny though. Akadi's like, no more assassinations without authorization. All right, I'm sick and tired of these goddamn assassinations without permission. Okay, if you're gonna kill somebody, you gotta get fucking permission. Okay, you got it, capiche? <laughs> Oh my it's god! Like, it's like the principle is not you thought that we're killing all these people, but it's like you fill out the paperwork, yeah. the right permission, yeah, get permission, the right, right stamps from the five correct KGB yeah. uh, officers. Then you're good. The then you're, you're golden at right. that point. Yeah, right. If the if the assistant to the undersecretary of the KGB signs the document, then fine. Put a nice pick in his neck, you know, whatever. But like. Don't be doing that on your own. <laughs> no freelance assassinations. And like, there's this moment where Gabriel is aligned with uh, our boy Lev Gorn as Arcadi here because Gabriel's like, you know, why would you do this West Berlin thing without the full permission of me? Is yeah. his version of Arcadi's no assassinations without yeah. the proper stamps and approvals. <laughs> Exactly. No, that's a big theme, right? There's like there's like this mirroring of like the rule. The wheels are coming off, right? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the orders is collapsing. Yeah. Meanwhile, with Stan, they're like, no more red tape. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. No, no more rules. As many as that, you've already done one assassination, Stan. Go do seven. More. It's great. Let's let's fucking go. <laughs> we won't we won't ask any questions. <laughs> but, but as we've mentioned before, Oleg represents this kind of new way of thinking. Yes. More open to relaxing certain Soviet era rules, embracing certain at least tactics and wisdom of the West, if not, it's, you know, ideology, right? For sure. Right. Um, yeah. And it's like interesting. He, he's in tension with kind of the rest of them. And also because, you know, he, he's got, he got to skip over people because his dad is important, you know? Yeah. The minister of railroads. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, f- a few FBI updates. Um, 
I found the scene where they arrest Anita to be fucking hilarious. They're like yeah. marching like soldiers down this long, you know, Pentagon hallway or wherever. And Zanita's just like happily make cracking jokes in the golf cart, like consistent with our personality. And then there's like the not even oh shit, but fuck you face that she gives to them when Gad and Adderholt and other FBI agents, not Stan, of course, uh, are there to arrest her. I don't know. There was something very funny about the way that this was shot um, that made me laugh. It's like like FBI bullshit. It's giving, like, uh, Austin Powers, like, trying to turn around (laughs) in the golf cart energy. (laughs) Great call. Great call. By the way, how little that technology has developed. If you use the same fucking golf carts 40 fucking years later at the goddamn airport, you know, right? It's like, uh, we're, get, it's like we're getting to, to airport notes. Don't worry, audience. Yeah. yeah all right. All right. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. sorry. And then also there's – this is a little bit going back to our discussion of Stan and Gad and the uh, deputy attorney general. But there's the look that Adderholt shoots Stan like – they would never let me get away with all of this bullshit, you motherfucker, mm-hmm. as, like, this black man who has risen to, mm-hmm. like, some position within the FBI. That's also an Adderholt, I was right about you all along, Stan, look that he gives, which I thought was, like, you know, Brandon Dearden doesn't get much to do with Adderholt in this episode other than march down the corridor and shoot this look at Stan, but he yeah. is successful in both of these moments. Adderholt is a massive upgrade over his, you know, the guy who who is one this million psychic. percent agree. Yeah, one no, it's a huge percent. upgrade. Like everything about him, the stash, the hair, the Amador faces, was a the kind of, right? Yeah, but it adds an interesting, right? Kind of like you know, you know, uh, um, kind of dynamic to it, right? For sure. Yeah, and like let Stan reveal his casual eighties style racism, uh, as we've seen throughout the episode. Although I will say, right. Amador was a lot funnier. As a character. Yeah. Than at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's fine. Okay. Um, a short update for me on Russian pronunciations of things. Carrie right. Russell has not improved since the last time we checked <laughs> in about this. Stan, however, drastic improvement in his pronunciation of Zanieta's name. So kudos to you, Stan. Nice. Listen, someone improving. I think intentional to show that when he has a gold in his mind, like free Nina, who I'm in love with, then he can set his mind to the otherwise to him, like extraneous task of actually learning how to pronounce this, these two, uh, these case, you know, two names in, uh, in Russian. So I think intentional, I'm going to choose to believe intentional. I want to believe. Yeah. I, I report it. And that's clear. That's clear. You definitely want to believe it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, time for some borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered or remembered, uh, if you're John Keller, 80s. John, do you want to say more about the Evil Empire speech? You gave us, I think, a very uh, effective, like, situating of that in context of 13-year-old John's uh, psyche and life earlier. But do you want to say anything else about, like, the importance of the speech? Well, I love how the episode ends there because it's a real, like, it, it was a historical cliffhanger. Like, nobody could have said, oh, wow, you know, Reagan's going to get reelected and then do this babyface turn after that and, like, try to make peace with Gorbachev and, like, these things, these new words, perestroika, glasshouse, and so on that are just barely in the lexicon at that point, you know, are going to really explode, you know, and kind of be huge and important. Um, but I think it was like a marker in the sand moment, right, at that time, right? Absolutely. Um, 
And it's one of the most important, you know, historical moments of the 80s, probably, is that particular speech. Yeah, sure. And I mean, like, the, perspective, sure. the historical perspective is, I think, interesting. Because not only is it, like, are we a couple years away from Gorbachev and Glasnost and Perestroika, but it's also uh, in less than nine years, eight years, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. But at the time, it seemed like a very yeah. scary, threatening, yeah. tightening, and increasing of tension. And I can assure you that people like my liberal parents were very nervous out hearing that. That was not – some people really, you know, got wood hearing that. Yeah. And some people like – my family was like, dude, this guy is scary, right? And, but, but, but the other half of the country, if not more, was like, at last, fucking A, you know? Yeah, we had this weak, no, we, this weakling no. Carter who, yeah. you know, would never say never yeah. say that like it tells so, like it is. Got a real man. I mean, I was 13, so I don't remember. I don't really, you know, I know. I probably didn't, I didn't hear that speech till later. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I, I think it's important and, um, you know. Great. Uh, and I think kind of relatedly, just like we touched on this a little bit, but the lawlessness within the intelligence agencies that Reagan yeah. is uh, actively encouraging the yeah. stand, go do whatever the fuck you want. We'll get rid of all the red tape for you is giving very, John, you mentioned this earlier, giving like the contras or maybe Danielle, you mentioned this as well. Um, yeah. It's like, you know, it's the same mindset that will you know, encourage the Iran, -Con Iran contra uh, situation is stand, go do whatever One the thing fuck I, you want. One thing I did watch when I was young was the Iran contra hearings. I was, Barely oh. old enough to kind of understand, and that was fascinating because Oliver North was exactly what you're talking about, right? He was basically somebody who broke every rule you can possibly break in the rule book, but for a higher, more noble purpose. And so we're supposed to forgive him in the name of patriotism, right? Because the Contras are the anti-communist, democratic, Christian force, <laughs> the heroes, and. So, you know, yes, he, did he break a few rules and violate the Congress's will and the Boland Amendment of forbidding that exact thing? Of course. But <laughs> for a yeah. Casual. Yeah. And, and again, Carter never, Carter never would have authorized something like that. No way. Not. No, no chance. And I mean, you know, no. it turned out okay for Oliver North, right? Like he got his Fox News gig for a long time and he, and he got a writing credit on uh, a season, on a show of the, on an episode of the Americans. Okay, it turned out great for him. He's a national celebrity. He was a fucking... A schnook in the NSC, and he's like a massive superstar with a, you know, probably a six, seven figure contract with Fox after that and all that. Yeah, like you said, no, right? I'm saying like he got to be a lawless fucking dick and also be successful professionally. So, you know, fuck he you, never went to jail North. or anything. <laughs> Other people did go to jail who did get implicated in that, but not him. Mm -hmm. Did he get an official pardon? I don't even remember. Guys, I don't know no, no, no. anything about this historical time period, like, at all, um, <laughs> okay. other than the things I learned from this show. Okay. Well, I was born in 1983. <laughs> I was born in 1987, but that doesn't stop me from... Yes, but you Danielle, also I... are obsessed with the, like, Sovietness of it all. <laughs> and good at history. Yeah. I think that's a great perspective you have because you're able to – I'm able to skip over the show and talk about what's going on. You're able to talk about the present as it's it's depicting because this is not just – this show is not just about 1983. It's about yeah. the show made in 2005's rendition of that and how that appeals to us now, you know? Right, but this is not the first time in this show with something like this where it's like a real-world thing that I like needed John to explain to me what what this was or why it was important and like the evil empire speech is a thing i had definitely heard of i'm sure i referenced it in an essay in like ap american but i don't think that i ever 
one, I've definitely never heard the speech, read the speech, like you were like, uh, you were like as uh, Obi Wan Kenobi said, comma. <laughs> I'm like Star Wars, right? <laughs> Harsh. <laughs> Harsh. Danielle, do you want to tell oh, us about, about Wes? I uh, didn't say I disagreed. Do you want to tell us? I, I did not like the Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi <laughs> show. Um, it's Danielle. Oh, John, knows. Oh, oh, surprise. John didn't like a piece of IP. <laughs> Andor, right? Like, that's that's the good shit. Um, oh, yeah, that's obviously. fair. Obviously. All right. Because well, it, it has some vaguely leftist themes that you could relate to. That's why you think Andor not is vague. so great. <laughs> like, not, not, not vague. Yeah. Not vague. And it's just better at all aspects than any Star Wars thing that's been created. It's and also, Gollum, it's also it. doing a thing in, in precisely what you're saying. That's what you like in shows. You like something that's like conceptually elevated. And so like, even with <laughs> it, like shows you very that even nice within, of you to not call me like you love pretentious director bullshit, but I appreciate that. And I love you for it. <laughs> You're welcome. I, I think um, I like it too. I, I think I, I between the two of you, unfortunately, I have to admit I'm more on John's side. <laughs> of course, although you I are. also watch. No one's surprised although I also, here. Although, <laughs> although I also do watch a lot of Marvel stuff too, and I'm not as I'm not critical of it the way John is because I don't, you know. Um, ultimately, yeah, I do like this kind of guys this space of TV. Like you know, I'm not gonna apologize like for my like popcorn taste. I went yeah, to see 65 to. this weekend. I was like, I'll watch Adam Driver <laughs> run around with dinosaurs. Cool. Wait, <laughs> what? Oh, yeah. What? Wait, explain. What? <laughs> I'm very confused. There's a movie called 65. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like a long time ago in, in a galaxy not far, Six, far 65 away. million years ago. Yeah, yeah. Adam Driver is like I, you're not going to see it, so I don't mind. Spoiling oh yeah, you it. can spoil away. Spo- spoiler <laughs> alert, audience. Adam Adam Driver is like going to sixty five. He's essentially like a space trucker, um, and has to go on. <laughs> okay. And like you know, he's like in a, on a con. He's like driving a convoy in space, and like ends up driving that has like people in. Like cryo freeze, whatever. As one does. Cryo sleep, sorry. And he like goes through an unexpected asteroid field and like crash lands on Earth. But he happens to crash land on Earth like 65 million years ago. And the unexpected asteroid field is like the asteroids that will like come and, and knock out all the dinosaurs. So he's like on the planet as this is happening. It's like a whole thing. Anyway, it's just like. Adam Driver in a lone wolf and cub situation, like with not a lot of talking because the character, the, the like cub character is like Dinosaur? a native. No, it's like a, uh, somebody from like one of the like native tribes. So like somebody who doesn't speak English, so they can't speak to each other. So there's not a ton of dialogue. It's actually really fascinating. <laughs> I'll it's, move it to the yeah, top of the list. Yeah, it sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'll, what if Jurassic I'm gonna, Park? I'm going to go watch Adam Driver. <laughs> I'm going to go watch Tar again instead of watching Adam Driver. Yeah. Doesn't need to do bullshit like this. Like he's got to be ridiculously loaded. Like 
she's better. That's how he, yeah, but it's like, that's how he funds his kids, like Brooklyn private school. I'm sure Star Wars did plenty of that uh, for him where he was good. Um, it's kind of right. I don't even know what we are talking about. I think we're I think somewhere in bar nostalgia. Danielle, what, yeah. what do you think about West Berlin? I just feel like the West Berlin of it all is so 80s because it's like, oh, like, like in the 80s, like in West Berlin, which was like in, right, it's in East Germany, but it's also West. So the fact that like they have to do the, the exchange, like that, that it's happening all in, in West Berlin, like, I don't know, it feels very 80s of it all. That's all. Can I, can I say kind of something here? So I was one of the first Americans to go through Checkpoint Charlie just because I happened to be on a term abroad in Europe while, like, the wall was falling. Um, um, this is amazing. No, just, just a lucky break. Yeah, you know, I so know. I this is cool. No, I, so I chipped some Berlin Wall, which I don't fucking – I lost it. I don't have my Berlin Wall. I lost it someplace. But anyway, I'm the only guy I know that could lose the piece of the Berlin Wall. But anyway, I just – this, this is where my lot of jokes – this is where my lot of joke comes from, John, because I walk from east to west Berlin, and, and I remember in east, in east, you know, in West Berlin, it looks like the West. It's bright, glitzy, glammy. It looks like whatever, right? New York, Brooklyn. Or Paris, looks kind of like Brooklyn. You know, all that looks like Brooklyn. And then as soon as you go through the east, there's like thirty cars in a row that are exactly the same model of maybe two colors. Uh, they look like 1964 Peugeots or something, which at the t- I didn't know this till later, but those were Lada's, right? Yeah. I, I didn't know that word at the time. Mm-hmm. Someone told me that word. Um, I thought it was funny because it was kind of like the Russian equivalent of like a Nova or something. But it was like, it was just astonishing. I'd never been in a place where I saw literally the same exact shitty rectangular car, 30 in a row, and how like bleak and dark and like, it was really striking, right, at that time to walk through there. And see the difference. And you're supposed to come back to the West and feel triumphalist and all that stuff. Um, (laughs) I don't know how we've been friends for 10 10 years or something. Had recorded podcasts about the Americans and I never knew you were like one of the first to cross checkpoint Charlie. I don't mean like, like I was like fourth or I mean, I just like in the first wave no, no, of the, no, no, uh, I, I don't mean I like, I, that, but I was, still, I was is third or whatever. Astonishing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was really intense. Yeah. Like it was, I went to Eastern Europe like at a time and like you could buy a, the whole bar in Prague a beer for five bucks or something uh, like that, you know, because a Western currency was some before like, you know, the West came in and just, just pillaged and took everything yeah. and bought everything out and, you know, bought the West Germans, bought all of East Germany and all that stuff. But anyway, it was really, uh, I remember that exact thing, that kind of dreariness and that going through that and how intense that was, you know, just seeing those ugly buildings and then 50 cars in a row, they're exactly the same. Say, I love that when, um, <laughs> when Keller is on, it's not borrowed nostalgia. It's like actual nostalgia for the remembered 80s. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just like to say that this is now my second favorite John Keller story time story <laughs> behind only the time when John worked out at the same gym as Lev Gorn a couple of times. Both yeah. both relevant for American Absolutely. Episodes. Of course. Amazing. All right. So from John's uh, travels uh, in Eastern Europe <laughs> to a very important note about the unremembered 80s. I don't know. There's something about the astonishment that uh, the characters at Est have over a man enthusiastically giving a woman oral sex that strikes me as extremely 80s. I wasn't, I, you know, I was there, but I was born in 87. So I actually don't know what the sexual mores of like upper middle class white America were in the 80s. But I'm guessing there was not a lot of oral sex going in that direction is my assumption. This, this, this reminds me of a conversation we had before about how you guys were praising Clark for going down yeah, and Martha. Yeah. Remember that whole thing? And like, 
you know, I found that funny because to me, being middle aged, I'm thinking about hair pieces and the quality of hair pieces. <laughs> oh, don't how, worry, we noticed. What I noticed is Philip's rug is very secure in that scene. Not oh wow, this. Well, we learned how secure it was in the last episode when he takes yes, seventy-five exactly. clips out and still has to yeah. peel it back. So to me, that wasn't really you know the oral sex there in that episode going back in season one or whatever that was. Uh, you know, was not a kind of triumph of any kind of gender politics. It really was just him flexing about how great his rug is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It does, anyway, as someone uh, who was born in the 80s and does not remember it, other than, like, Popples and Teddy Ruxpin, um, it does feel like a renewed appreciation for oral sex feels maybe very 80s. I don't know. It also feels like cocaine-adjacent. Yeah. I'm not sure. You, wait, wait. We, this, th- we think Clark is doing coke before going to be sex god <laughs> Clark. That's, wouldn't be that surprised. sounds like, sounds like a dossier entry, um, a late breaking <laughs> dossier entry. You asked if I had any more. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think my account is not going to be reliable on this type of question from several Too much reasons. Coke. The, most important, the most important of which, the most important of which, is that I was a suburban white suburban kid in the eighties. From the, I don't know that like my perspective on the status of oral sex nationally would be particularly insightful. Yeah, you didn't hear anything at like right. gold gyms, people bragging about their exploits. Yeah, I know. Yeah, the gold gyms extremely anecdotal evidence. Whatever I've heard is extraordinarily anecdotal. I also went to Gold's gym in high school. Yeah, without any redeeming or, or kind of uh, you know value to the larger question, I would say. Great. I this yeah. was extremely educational. Danielle, what's next on our list? Sorry. I just want to like, no, derail that. John, please do not apologize in the slightest. Literally do not. No apologies. No, not needed. at all. Like somebody out there knows about the status of oral sex in the eighties, but it's not any of the three of us. Okay? <laughs> True. <laughs> For True. various like, reasons. <laughs> yeah, you two might be better at it in one way. I'm a better after in a lived experience way, but those are three very unreliable, like yeah. Measuring sticks, right? For sure. Okay. Right? That's uh, moving a on podcast. to Toys in Jean's apartment. That is my eighties entry. I feel like all the toys, it's like it's not exactly rock'em sock'em robots, but it's like rock'em sock'em robots adjacent, which feels like very eighties. Yes. Nice. They're all like a little mechanical, a little robot-y. And I forget yeah. if this is in the episode or if one of you mentioned this, but there's a way in which like jeans toys, which are very 80s specific. I would agree with that from my limited experience uh, perspective that are like things that Henry could have in his room. Yeah. Well, and then Philip says that, okay, right? Okay, that, that like, that's that. what it is. Philip yeah. says it when he's talking to Elizabeth and she's ignoring his like literally mid breakdown, yeah. like speech. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's interested in, did you do the job? Did you leave yeah. a mess? And are, are we going to get caught? Not, what are your, what are your, like, this remainder or excess of your feelings is just, you know, well, in fact, she's like, you know, in fact, she's like, Paige is, I think it was good for her. Paige is solid. <laughs> Paige is calling Pastor Tim. <laughs> yeah. Mid, mid, mid nervy B, uh, nervous breakdown nervy B is one of my yeah. favorite Five podcasters plus. in the non Danielle and John category. Uh, nice, recently nice, called nice. the nervous breakdown. 
about uh, uh, one about Robert Smith of The Cure having a nervy bee. Keep them going. We got some suitcases. Suitcases strike me as very old fashioned. We got like handheld, rectangular. There's no wheels. Like, you know. Nice. Also, I think that Philip is literally like walking them to the gate, which feel like there was no security in this airport. And the fact that Elizabeth, like on what seems like is a false passport, like makes it to Germany, which feels like it should be hard to do if you are a spy. Although we know that they've traveled outside the U.S. before, right? We get like the flashbacks of like Elizabeth meeting Zhukov in no, I know that, but but wherever the the reason why I bring it up is just because Gabriel makes a point to talk about it. Mm, Like he makes mm -hmm. a point to like warn Philip about it. So it seems like there's something like a little heightened about it too. The suitcase thing is funny just because by the eighties, I should have fucking figured out how to put fucking wheels on suitcases. (laughs) Come on. That's not, that's not nuclear fission or whatever. You know, it's not like, that's not the internet. Okay. Hey, there's already a lot of wheels that are small in existence on chairs and so on. Like nobody thought, Hey, it'd be great to wheel your really heavy bag. Right, not just schlep it. Yeah, but you know, no, yeah. no. We 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 used to call them valises, by the way. That's what Ooh. that's what we used to call. Fancy, you know, bring like a, bring it back. Like a shitty, no, not in my <laughs> fancy, no, fancy mean, luggage is not. You know, the airport does seem a lot chiller uh, in the eighties than the airport does today. Yeah, you'd be like smoking a cigarette, waiting at the gate with your sign up saying, you know, right, grandma or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? All right, two small yeah. notes to get us out of the 80s segment because Danielle is done. Um, is the jackets <laughs> that Dirtbag Philip has on and then yeah. Gene himself has strike me as like very 80s and their beigeness and their patterns, um, I would say. And- Dirtbag, Phil- Dirtbag Philip is so uh, yeah. Yeah. Money. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. love Dirtbag Phillips. Uh, the 80s yeah. was a great decade for Dirtbag fashion. 100%. No <laughs> notes. Uh, and then also we have jeans, like 100%. Commodore computer, oh, yeah. which is very, Aww. very 80s and like pre-MS-DOS era. Yeah. I mean, I definitely had like a like a denim, like a, a denim jacket with like some kind of painting on the back and shit, whatever bands I liked on these, on the things, right? Like I wore that. Who were, who were you listening yeah. to in 83, John? I don't know. I mean, like the thing is that you liked that music of that era, but I didn't, I was like into older stuff, you know? I like some of so, them. Like, Let's be clear. I like your yeah. like gothy shit, your synth pop. Like, yeah, these, yeah. these are my eras of the eighties. Guys, I, mean, they I came it- out of the womb listening to Billy Joel. Which is relevant because <laughs> eighty three Billy Joel is like a Long Island rock star, massive, massive, massive star. You can't avoid Billy Joel. Nobody on the planet doesn't know who Billy Joel is. Nineteen eighty three, a million percent. Do you think that youths of today, non Billy Joel, non Long Island division, know who Billy Joel is? Their parents do. Yeah. Certainly in my school. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Their parents I feel my, bad for them do. if they don't. <laughs> Billy Joel was great. I'm sorry. You have is. to admit. He what was, 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 was is. Oh, no. Billy Joel is great. Uh, I mean, I'm not dissenting from this. I just, it's like yeah. the extreme identification of Long Islanders with Billy Joel in my ex- limited experience is what I find yeah. amusing. But Billy Joel himself, bangs, bangs. Got a call from an old friend. We used to be real. <laughs> <laughs> Bottle of red. <laughs> My parents Bottle used to white. go to the restaurant that that song is about. 
My parents are from Syosset. My uncle played drums in a band with Billy Joel what? around the corner from my wow, grandparents' really? house. Yeah. yeah. Not really? what? All of these things I'm <laughs> learning about my two closest friends that they've never. <laughs> God, that's <laughs> crazy. Wait, you're, you played in drums for Billy Joel? Not for Billy Joel, but like in a band that Billy Joel was in before he was Billy Joel. Wow. Because Billy Joel's from like Cold Spring. So yeah, like, yeah. yeah, he used to play in like a house band around the corner from my, my grandparents' house. Didn't Billy Joel make like a Cold War era like record about Russian? We didn't start the fire, right? Isn't that a Cold War yeah, 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 record? Yeah, 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 yeah. But is it like pro Cold War or is it like no, pro Perestroika? It's not. Is it like pro peace or what? <laughs> hold, hold, please. Hold. <laughs> I, it's not. We didn't start the fire. Does he have lefty instincts like Springsteen does, or does he have like? It's a, honestly a reactionary question. Yeah, I think he's a little of each, right? Right, you know what I mean. It strikes me as not as like vaguely liberal as Springsteen. Yeah, because Springsteen's directly influenced by like Woody Guthrie and Arlo Guthrie and For so sure. on. But Billy Joel is not. He's a, he's a troubadour. That's a different thing. So you know? two things. One is yes, Stormfront is the album right. that we didn't start the fire is on, which is like which has Leningrad on it, which is right. a song right. that okay. literally like is about. <laughs> Like Leningrad. Yeah. Um, the other. Yeah, we listened to that when I was in my teens, probably. I think I listened to that. Stormfront is 89. So that's like the first album that I remember listening to in my, in my dad's truck. Um, but the other, like, Billy Joel also has this album, The Nylon Curtain, which is also. Yeah. And like, yeah. Mostly he's just like a, a, a stoner who's like. <laughs> having sex and like singing about it playing the piano um so wikipedia informs us that he played a benefit with the boss to uh raise Mm. money for obama's campaign in 08 and he voted for clinton over trump in 16 that's all that wikipedia has uh but uh he has never publicly affiliated himself uh or publicly endorsed political candidates other than those two instances. All right, Billy Joel talk over. We're going on to minor character of the week, not the major character that Billy Joel is in at least some of our lives. In honor of John and just his grace and his presence on this podcast, um, uh, we're going to have multiple minor characters of the week. So first, John, who is our serious minor character of the week? It's just my character of the week is the, uh, the Elizabeth's mother, Paige's grandmother, of course, you know, um, and uh, that's a really gripping 90 seconds, as you said, right? Absolutely. So, for sure. Played by Alexandra Mirna, um, Elizabeth's mother. And, I, you know, the the way in which she goes immediately into, like, mom mode and emotional mode towards Elizabeth. But, like, the rigor of this was absolutely the right thing to do. I would do it a hundred times out of a hundred. Um, the stakes mm. were so high. Like, I thought revealed something about Elizabeth in that short interaction. So we love it. And there's a lot of pressure in deathbed confessionals. Those can always go badly on TV shows. So I thought they, yeah. they handled this like very, very well. Like she stuck to the, she stuck to the, to the kind of company line, the mother, yeah. you know, which I, think I that's was happy right. about. It would have been, it would have been awkward if she had some, I don't know, that could, that scene could have been mishandled very yeah. badly, but it was great. Yeah. In yeah. part because yeah. it's Elizabeth and not Philip, right? With Philip, it would have been a sentimental mess. <laughs> um, 
And, yeah, no, yeah, yeah Hunter, absolutely. Good thing Paige good can't point, speak actually. Russian. Yeah. <laughs> also Excellent. a good point. Right. Okay, what is right. our uh, less serious minor character of the week? <laughs> well, and, and I believe the first Est meeting scene yeah. where that woman stands up and says she's unsatisfied uh, with, her, with her sex life with her husband, starts talking about how he just out of nowhere randomly started going down on her. And she's telling this story, and then the shot has this dude right behind her, <laughs> which just suddenly perks up and is listening really carefully. <laughs> like with this great look of intrigue, right? Yeah. Because uh, he knows people are looking at him, so he doesn't want to be like, whoa, or whatever. But he's like, but he definitely perks up and comes to life a little bit yeah. you know, at that moment. So, I thought it was so honorable mention to Jennifer's, we believe the character name, telling the story yeah. played by Laura Heisler, but a special recognition to the extra who really got into his role for this one scene. Listen, you don't ever notice an extra really that often. And this is a, an excellent, like when someone's talking about oral sex and you're there in the shot, you know, you don't want to mess that up. You know, he, he definitely <laughs> nailed it. You know, absolutely. Seriously, he could have made his he could have made a stupid face and ruined it. Right? I, like, I I totally agree with you. I just I'm because it's kind of funny, but it's not really a funny scene. But it's sort of funny, right? I'm smiling at the depth of your analytical judgment here, John. <laughs> it's funny how I rank on you guys for using all these big words, and then I'll I'll go on for fifteen minutes about some. Extra <laughs> it is quite talk. funny. <laughs> <laughs> I think it means we earned twenty five dollars back just on pure principle. But let's Give head in. Right, let's head into John's favorite segment, <laughs> the cave. Danielle, who is our companion into the cave this week? So our our companions are multiple, but I think like most specifically, I want to think about some feminist critiques of Descartes or feminist critiques of the of like mind body dualism. Because one of the things that we've been talking about throughout this entire episode, sort of spurred on by by all the est of this episode, is this idea of the truth existing in the body that there's something that the body is like telling these characters is presenting for these characters. And I think this idea really goes against um, a sort of fundamental concept in Western philosophy, which a number of feminists have pushed back against, but this idea that there's a kind of separation between the mind and the body and that the mind is and should take precedence over the body. So feminist thinkers like uh, the one that I'm going to sort of quote from in a moment is Elizabeth Grosch. Um, and I was saying this to John before he started recording, but the last time that I looked at this book, I was writing the first chapter of my dissertation, which is a, a fair minute ago. But so something that feminist uh, critiques of this mind-body dualism are sort of after is they want to think about not the separation between mind and body, but the ways in which like the mind and the body or like uh, reason and emotion or rationality and the passions. And those are sort of different names for that dualism. It's feminist thinkers want to think about the ways in which those, these things are intertwined and like fundamentally intertwined and really can't be separated, which is pushing back against this dualism. So just to pull a, a quote from Grosch. So in Volatile Bodies Towards a Corporeal Feminism, she writes, If, as feminists have claimed, our politics start with our feelings, 
And if the very category of experience or feeling is itself problematized through a recognition of its ideological production, if, that is, experience is not a raw mode of access to some truth, then the body provides a point of of mediation between what is perceived as purely internal and accessible to the subject and what is external and publicly observable, a point from which to rethink the opposition between the inside and the outside, the public and the private, the self and, and other, and all the other binary pairs associated with the mind body opposition. So something that I think these feminist critiques of mind-body dualism or mind-body opposition are offering is a way to, to sort of like appreciate and think critically with the body in relation to the like general, I would say like the, the general meat of, of a lot of conventional and canonical political theory or Western philosophy, the sort of like the substance of reason alone detached from a kind of corporeal existence. I love it. Can I add on a quote of my own from the history of feminist philosophy? Please. So not not dueling pianos, i.e. with piano men. We are going to have dueling feminist philosophers. So I've got here with me uh, Genevieve Lloyd's The Man of Reason, Male and Female in Western Philosophy from page 50. We owe to Descartes an influential and pervasive theory of mind, which provides support for a powerful version of the sexual division of mental labor. Women have been assigned responsibility for that realm of the sensuous, which the Cartesian man of reason must transcend if he is to have true knowledge of things. Woman's task is to preserve the sphere of the intermingling of mind and body, to which the man of reason will repair for solace, warmth, and relaxation. If he is to exercise the most exalted form of reason, he must leave soft emotions and sensuousness behind. Woman will keep them intact for him. End quote. I love that because I think the thing that that the the Lloyd quote helps um, highlight is that not only is there this like mind body dualism that's pervasive within Western philosophy, but also the reasoning mind is often associated with or reinforced around like like men, masculinity, being male, that that's the association and the soft, as you said, the softer uh, traits, the emotions, the, the those that are sort of located in the body, those are, that's associated with like women, female femininity. And so like you get that dualism mapped onto a, like a, a specifically a gender difference. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is, I think I want to go back to a point that John made at the very beginning of the episode. And that is that like we have in this episode, then the potential for Est and for Anton Baklanov to like slightly subvert this. But in the Est version, it's the silliest and most superficial and most neoliberal way to subvert this like gendered oppressive hierarchical distinction in the history of Western thought between mind and body. Yeah, the S version is just reversing Descartes without any sophistication, yes. basically, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, all that's, yeah. that's all that it's doing. Without, right? That basically says, don't do what you've been told, do the opposite. And yeah. with that, we brought, we brought John into the cave in the end. That's $25 for each of us. <laughs> I'm sorry, but Danielle, you were going to make an actual point before I mansplained John's position in this. No, uh, I'm, I'm, honestly, that feels like a good place to, to kind of... Like, I think thinking about, like, 
est is the it's the TLDR version of <laughs> a lot of like theoretical richness, which I think goes back to Keller's like general thesis of this episode, which is like like the American version of all this stuff is like devoid of substance, right? Like there's like yeah. that, that seems to capture a lot of what we've talked about this whole episode. But this is a big theme, though. This is like what yeah. Emerson is to European Romanticism, for example. Like what, you know, that whole American transcendentalism turns out it's kind of corny, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's European co correlate, which it's derived from, is much more interesting, right? But it gets put through this kind of meat grinder of Americanization or whatever, and that's how it comes out. You know, even though I love Emerson, I recognize this feature of his writing, right? Which is like this, like, Americanized version of this romantic tradition. Honestly, a good read on Emerson. Yeah. I love it. Also, thank you for your cave edition. Yeah. John no, Keller. That's pretty standard. Like, that's not like, that's like pretty standard. Like, I didn't think. Yeah. Of that. But like, I'm not an, an Emerson expert. So like, I yeah, appreciate you bringing <laughs> even a like relatively normal. Just take normal the compliment, Keller. God. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you yeah. so much. Yes, uh, look look at that. your like professional political theory opinion having in this episode. You've okay, just been yeah, consummate, this whole episode. consummate political <laughs> theorist, Jonathan Keller. Yeah. Americanized romantic. <laughs> uh, let's do some theory ships. Yeah. Um, I'll start on the uh, Danielle's journey to the cave. Uh, I would like to give whoever's conducting the Est seminar some Descartes to force him <laughs> to further articulate what exactly the fuck is going on with this like body knows the truth stuff. Danielle? I got another one, but I'll come back to it. <laughs> Into it. Um, I want to give Paige mm. some Kierkegaard fear and trembling because that it feels like it really captures physically where, where she was at. But also like, she, I don't know, the like frou-frou version of like Protestantism that Paige is getting from Pastor Tim like <laughs> does seem to need like some... Edge. Like actual content. Yeah, edge. So I feel like that is uh that's that was my surprise one. We're gonna give her Kierkegaard and she's gonna put on uh the latest cure album. It'll pair together perfectly. So callback. So we're also music shipping. Uh I would like to offer another theory ship, which is Stan, the deputy attorney general, and also Arcadi all need to reach Schmidt on the state of exception. Oh, I was like friend and enemy. <laughs> <laughs> or that. Dan I think definitely they, needs that. <laughs> I think Reagan's people, including Deputy AG, already kind of understand. <laughs> pretty well, you know That's I mean? true. I That's know, true. They, I don't know that they, uh, I, I would ship that to Oleg, actually, <laughs> not to those guys. Just, no, just because I'm curious what, how he would find, right, that and whether he would see himself in any way commits mm. theorizing. I like it. Any other, any other ships you want to offer, John? No, but I mean, I want to hear Danielle just do this one. Listen, Barry, I'm dying to hear about this one. <laughs> what a great tease. Uh, yeah, so. Nietzsche Sandy. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to give Sandy some Nietzsche. I feel like Sandy, like, is on the cusp of, like, a real personal revolution. And this goes to the point that, like, Est is, like, it's, the, it's going through the motions without the, like, meat behind it. And I feel like Sandy would really do well with a little bit of, like, Nietzsche, in particular on, like, the truth, like, speaking truth to power stuff. You know, like, I don't know. I just feel like, like, there's something in there for Sandy 
And S does, she thinks she's getting it from S, but the real stuff is like, is elsewhere. <laughs> is, is in Nietzsche. <laughs> yeah. Who, so what, what Nietzsche text are you thinking? Well, okay, um, you could only give her one. What would you, what would you give her? Oh, I don't know. I wasn't only thinking of one. I kind of wanted her to read everything. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we give her Zarathustra, right? Yeah. I guess that's like, if there's one, there's that one. What would you yeah, give her, John? Uh, I, well, I'm, I never thought about this till I saw this note here. It's intriguing. I've never thought about it, but I'll quiz um, you on Nietzsche titles right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> we already established he's a professional <laughs> political theorist. So. That's an interesting suggestion, <laughs> an interesting uh, opening salvo you made, Danielle. But I, I think I would give her. No. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think if she needs this. I, <laughs> no, no like, one needs this. You, That's you, not you, the point of the segment. <laughs> <laughs> what is the point? Oh, point is oh, don't need it. But what? The point is to do some like bullshit theory connections. No, no, no. How can we fuck up? I'm reading it as how can we fuck up this person's life? Because <laughs> none of these texts are going to make their lives better in any way. Fucking up S is not going to make them better. It's going to make them confused and basically right. Giving so Cage right? like existential like horror oh, is going to not be good for her. Okay. I, a girl found refuge with, with Pastor Tim and with Christianity, and you want to ruin it for her with your fucking Kierkegaard, making her what? Confused and lost. Okay? Yeah. Because, True. because we're in the business of thinking all day about confusion and getting lost and getting paid for it. We somehow we think that that's good for people. I noticed that you said we there. I noticed that you identified as a political theorist there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I'm stuck with that label. What <laughs> I can do about it. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Okay, so um, what Nietzsche would you give what, to Sandy to most fuck up her life? I guess is, I suppose, your version of this question. <laughs> Sandy, though, what what, was, what does Sandy need? What do I want to? So you you guys are trying to help the people with the ship, or <laughs> it's just like, you know? it's not like help. It's just like enhance what? or or enrich. Enhance your experience of the character, not not yeah. the character itself, right? Just you're you're okay. giving you're putting too much thought into this. It's just a riff. Yeah. <laughs> We're just riffing. No, no, I'm not, no, I don't think I am. I think it's a great question. <laughs> I, I want to know what this section's for. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. Okay, <laughs> anybody can think of political theory and say, "Oh yeah, that'd be great to add." Oh my this god! To okay, character. okay. Here's you know? here's. I'll try to give a real explanation. The origins of this, where we had my friend Regan Levitt, who like her work is on like fan studies, and she like studies fanfic and stuff. So we were making a oh, joke nice. about like okay. shipping characters together, which turned yeah. into a bit about well, we don't aren't going to do that, but we can ship theorists to characters. So it's just like a pure fantasy realm. What do you think it would be funny to have happen? Wow. See, I just don't look at it that way. To me, it's how, what one book can I send to this person to help them? That's the, that's the way that I can. That's the only way that I can I think see. about it. Okay. Well, what one right? book would you send any character in in this episode to help them? I would joke before, but I think you're right. Kierkegaard would, might be good for a page a little bit, right? Do Actually. You know? So I think you were maybe thinking a little bit the way that I am on that, right? Yeah, a little bit. I think so. Right? Like she could use a lot of that, a little more like, you know, uh, kind of a critical eye. On what yeah, she's a little doing. more substance, yeah. a little bit more of a critical eye, a, a way to. Yeah. She seems like so enamored with like, with Pastor the Tim. like Pastor Tim and like the church of it all. That it's like, if you're going to do, if it like. Be real with yourself and either like contend with these things or recognize that you have a schoolgirl crush on someone and that's why you're doing this. 
which Kierkegaard's not going to help you with. But the other part, definitely. But, like, <laughs> the fact that you're like, ooh, this is not the vibe that I'm looking for. I'm just looking for my crush. Might The Kierkegaard might help you recognize that. All right, I got one. Okay. Uh, origins of totalitarianism to Philip. Oh. Great. Great Actually, follow. we've definitely given origin to someone before, but now I forget who it was. It was not Philip. So, oh, I, I mean, he really... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't. He Philip. needs he needs some help to understand yeah. his predicament, right? He's smart enough to understand the constituent pieces of it. Yeah. But like, he needs to read something other than what he's been indoctrinated to or pretended to believe in. Yeah. He's only ever done those two things himself to kind of see himself in this larger world, which he's having trouble doing right now. And yeah. Texts like that might, I think, might really because he might recognize the dynamics and characters in that text of people that he knows back home and people he interacts with now and. Gabriel, and so on. I love the seriousness with which you approach this topic, John. It warms my cold heart. Yeah, it's not where it's we're It's funny that I misunderstood like and I didn't understand. You guys don't give a shit about the character. You just want to make it more interesting for yourselves. <laughs> like you, you, want an extra cave, you want an extra cave section. That's all that, that is, really. So, ding, ding, ding. A theory shit. To be fair, to be fair, it's Now we owe you a dozen cannolis because you realize the truth <laughs> of theory ship. Okay. John's always here but, to read us. But, <laughs> let's move into the extra bonus segment because John's here. Somehow it's two and a half hours in and we're still going. We have one more segment. It's a special segment and it is the time when I mute myself for <laughs> Yankees Corner, which apparently I've learned is Rules Corner. So let me get get my timer ready, and you'll, I'll give you an extra thirty seconds each each season. So I think you're up to two and a half minutes for uh, for your baseball rules corner. Go. All right, I just want to hear from Danielle. So Danielle, these massive changes yeah. are underway in the sport: larger bases, pickoffs, and so on and so forth. What's yeah. your general take? Hot take so far on these big changes? Honestly, I'm I'm all for them. I I think like they require a different kind of foresight and a different kind of planning. And I'm interested in like planning that gives us better baseball. And I think that the, I think that the bigger bases, I'm like less worried about that, but like the pitch clock and then also a change that came in last season where uh, pitchers have relief pitchers have to pitch like three to three batters or to the end of the inning. So it limits the amount of like, coming in for one batter, which also is related to like mm-hmm. game and also is related to like the strategizing that a manager must do in order to like win. So I love base stealing and anything that will put that, that, that dynamic back into the sport. Yeah. That confrontation between the runner, the pitcher, the pickoff throw. Yeah. If you ever watch Ricky, Ricky Henderson play yeah. his prime, that's a very exciting lost element of the game that I'm very, I hope that this will bring back. Because yeah. it's, a beautiful, it's a great part of the sport, you know what I mean? Well, and I think like something that has been lost in in the introduction of instant replay is like you can see like did they actually tag the person or were they like in the in the general area? And I think right. like making the bases bigger actually like takes the importance off of the instant replay a little bit and brings back a little bit yeah. of the flavor of the base dealing. We have one minute remaining Definitely. in the baseball rules corner. Why are you so strict about this? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've this wasted is my two and a half hours. <laughs> on, 
fucking and bullshit theory nonsense. This is we're actually talking about something real now. You know, wait, more, so what more you real than Kierkegaard? Come on. <laughs> I still, I'm still stuck on the whole like theory ship thing being extra cave and not like <laughs> I really thought it was like you guys care about the characters and you want to help them out and you don't care at all about them. You just I want literally a was more like, satisfying I hope experience. That Paige kills yeah. Martha. <laughs> <laughs> like that's on you for misunderstanding, my dude. I, I think my way is better. I'm sorry. I, but I'm, I just I'm always going to do theory ship. The baseball and, corner is turned into more cave. That's what I'm excited about. I'm, I'm stunned. I can't believe that you don't. That it was an extra cave and not its own thing. Why don't you just say, okay, more cave. You can't you know? believe it. You're, 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 more. you're stunned no, that Danielle and I would come up with more bullshit political theory, pop culture ties. I can't in. believe you made up a phony category to extend the conversation <laughs> of political theorists. And name specific phony category. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. All of Shocking. the categories in the whole episode are phony. <laughs> <laughs> really? I took them all so seriously. Except, <laughs> except like for Barrow Nostalgia yeah. from oh the end of the 80s, which is very real and still a reference that Danielle does not know halfway through the Americans. And also, sad. that section, I can't help but experience differently than you guys do. Because yeah. for me, it's not that. It's remembered. Yeah. So it's actually very, even though you call it whatever you want, I get to do, I get to do, you know. Yeah. You and, you and Lily Warren have, can remember the 80s. Yes. So that's yes, another thing that remember. you guys share. Yes. Right. That's about it though, right? Uh, okay, guys. <laughs> she's, she's, I'm closing right. Yankee's Corner. I'm wow. closing the cave. I like, I'm closing this episode. Because one one more. Going- I'm just going to give you a Yankee's Corner question. How are, so it's currently not yet the start of the baseball season, if I understand it correctly. What's like the prediction Correct. on the Yankees record from my two favorite baseball members? I don't predict Yankee record. No, thank you. Wow. I, I'm not going to um, wade into that. I think they're the same as last year, but the Astros are still better. But I'm really excited now. They have these rookies, and I hope that these rookies that are really impressive in camp I know. that I've been reading about, I want to see them play because it's always fun. I know. The team is doing well. It's fun, but it's more fun to see somebody who's 21 years old. A hundred percent. Selling like I was watching Derek Jeter for the first time. Or, or even it's like so much more gratifying. Even when they Judge, called yeah. up Judge and um, yeah, amazing. They called up other people. It was like Judge Gary Sanchez. Like they all came up together. They it was like it, they it infused like new blood into Glaber mm-hmm. Torres. Like they all kind of came up around the same time. Yeah. It infused new blood into. So I'm with you. I'm like I I just saw a report that. Um, Boone was like having Isaac, Isaac kind of Falefa like take some like take some balls in the outfield because like they're transitioning him to a utility role, which is supposed to like maybe show us that they're yeah. gonna have Volp in uh in shortstop. Yeah, I hope so. And I feel like that listen, what do they have to lose? Like IKF, like a a, a very solid shortstop and a terrible offensive player. <laughs> You know, we already have enough offensive players who are not great. We need some like good bats. You should call WFAN, Danielle. You'd be good. Danielle from Western. Danielle from Western Mass. Go ahead, Danielle. First time, long time. Central Mass. Uh, Central Mass. Listen, I was. That's where you live, Central Mass, right? Yeah, you said Western Mass, though. That was where you lived. Oh, sorry, sorry. All right. Well, I'm just. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, Clark is cons- oh, right central, right? Worcester, Worcester, yeah. Worcester, right? Yeah, yeah, right. But Worcester I was central, I was right? laughing because I was at uh, I was at 
a cafe last week, like working, and there were like three men with Red Sox hats, and I was just like angry about it that 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 existed. And then I was like, well, I'm in Worcester, so, so of course Plattsburgh there are, but... is this weird mix of like half Boston sports fans and yeah. half New York yeah. City sport, and forty yeah. forty, and then like twenty percent Buffalo fans. So it's a well, there's no baseball thing. in Buffalo. Yeah, exactly. So baseball, it's split between Yanks and Red Sox. Yeah, in Plattsburgh, that makes I love the T. I love TAing like courses in political theory at UMass when I was a grad student there because it was all like you know be like 30 Red Sox hats in the, in the, you know, in the class. And I would just call the role and be like, you know, what are we going to do about this Red Sox situation here? You know, one of my favorite students from New York. So I teach a class 9am on Mondays and one of my favorite students in that class, this, and this week was the week we came back from spring break. So like 9am on Monday is like rough that day in particular. And one of my favorite students were like, how are you feeling about like Yankees camp? And I was like, Oh, I didn't even know that you like cared or that you heard me say that. But also now you are 1 million percent my favorite. (laughs) How does he know you're a Yankee fan? (laughs) I must've, I mean, I'm very like loud about being from long Island (laughs) and I, Mm. I'm sure that I've said it at some point. As I've gotten older, I only ever talk about baseball in the context of making a joke about being white, fifty-three, and male, right? So of course I like, of course I like baseball, and I love you know Flomax ads and lawn care products, which are all the ads on baseball <laughs> oh games now. I stopped joking about when I was younger because nobody likes baseball anymore, right? Except for you know, like you're Me. the youngest baseball fan that I know, basically. You know, my and I like younger sister and her husband are both huge baseball fans. And so, are they Rockies fans? Yeah, Rockies 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 fans. fans Mm -hmm. Really? Wow. Yeah, huge, huge fans. Like, 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 it's often on the TV, like on a summer night. If I'm like visiting Colorado and they're there, they like go to several games a year. Like, yeah, it's like a. John, I know you're not a fan, but you can appreciate the beauty of the game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I play baseball. Growing yeah. up until I quit it to focus full time on debate in the like I literally that's the right. thing that I did on uh, the most John McMahon move possible. But of the sports, if I made you get into a major sport, basketball, let's say I, for, I forced you to get you to pick basketball or soccer, right? yeah, well, it's totally fucked up politics, right? It totally yeah, does. But if, yeah. I, if, all, I, if I focused all on the that, sports I could, do all the major sports. No, but there's a big difference between like football? NASCAR, baseball, basketball. Football? Fo- no, there's a big difference. Baseball, of course baseball, there is. Baseball, football, equally bad, right? I mean, I think, like, on a pure well, – let's put it this way. Like, the World Cup is on. I'm, like, actually having the World Cup on in the background. So, like, just on a pure enjoyment of the game, mm. soccer probably would be my sport if I was to, okay. like, get into sports a lot. Yeah. I'll take like, that. I listen to WFN, WFN once in a while just to laugh, and it's like – it was not a right-wing station when I was little, but it's clearly become, right – the yeah. home of like white right wing people from the New York area who call up and complain about, you know, people being unable to control their bodily desires and people being ungrateful because they make all these millions of dollars and all that. Right. But I and feel like, like always the, well, I was just going to say, like, I feel like part of that is like places like Long Island have always been like a little like conservative and like now in the like post Obama, post Trump era are like, blazing red conservative like the fact yeah. that george yeah, yeah. santos george santos is from my district right and like right, right, right. If that was definitely a republic like it has been a republican district in the past but the like mm-hmm. aggressiveness of it the amount of blue lives matter flags around my parents houses and like 
cars that have Blue Lives Matter yeah. and multiple stickers and like ones that still drive around with Trump flags on them. My sister's always like, oh, if your flag was bigger, Trump would have won. Like, you know, like, like that has, I think like WFN is just reflecting the like. Yeah, no doubt. hundred percent. hundred percent. hundred percent. All right. Absolutely. Reflect the population, you know. We got to wrap this up because okay. I have to be somewhere in 14 minutes. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I All can right. talk to you both for the next seven hours and feel totally fine about for it. For the Patreon at a later date. For the Patreon at a later date. Thank you to thank you John Keller yes. for joining us, for entertaining our extended cave. <laughs> some some <laughs> say it might have been the whole episode. Uh, some say it might have just been a longer version of the cave, but thank you for all of it. Um, thanks as always thank to producer Amy. Up next in the feed, maybe an American season three wrap up sort of depends on where we're at. But after that, great question. I think we've teased today one that there might be one possibility is whatever parochial show John records while Danielle <laughs> researches and cavorts around Europe. Yeah. That's uh, literally what it says in the notes. Danielle's is, yeah, is yeah, reading yeah. our notes. So yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. Diving into her book and not watching the Americans <sighs> for so the summer. Sad. But one of the possibilities, if John can be convinced and we can meet his contract terms, um, will be Pope cast. <laughs> yeah. Young Pope. Wait, are, are you, are you working in Greece or are you just hanging out and traveling and stuff? <laughs> I am doing research. Oh, because your book's about that, yes. right? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm excited. We'll get research updates know that. from Danielle. Yeah. I'll, like, like do it... dispatches from the field. Yeah. Okay. And we'll figure um, out the most right, appropriate time to splice them into Lemmy Blardo Hour. Yeah. <laughs> Lemmy Blardo, Blardo. All the episodes are going to be two hours and 40 minutes long for young folks. So John, I'm sure. I'm, I'm seems sure, right. Yeah. I'm sure. Seems right. All right. Thank Keller, thank you again for thank joining you, us. Thank you. And super fun as always. Super fun to have you. And thanks to our wonderful audience for joining us here on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, Go play some racquetball.